I want to introduce our two moderators this morning. I don't really need much of an introduction, but Jonathan Martin this is a senior political reporter from Politico, uh, and Jan Crawford is a political correspondent, chief legal correspondent for CBS News. We're excited to have both of them here, and take it away, Jan and Jonathan. be a really useful tool to have at home. Uh, Jonathan and I were talking this morning, you know, trying to figure out how we actually we only have a very short time to cover a lot of ground. And so one of the things that I was talking with some of you guys last night is to get the conversation started, Jonathan, I thought we're going to actually toss it out to you because you were there, I mean, from the beginning, formulating the strategies, seeing what your opponents were doing. So we're just going to say the first question. The floor is yours. What, what would you guys ask? What are the one of the other questions that have been on your mind ever since the primary that you were curious about one of your opponents and their strategy? Somebody dive in. <laughs> dive in. Come on. Like Come on, Keith. All right, well, let's talk about perhaps the, the structure, the process of the campaign, uh, where there are too many debates. I mean, there's a million kind of general questions we'd like to ask all of you guys. And then, of course, we have specific questions for each campaign. Um, one of the things that we were obviously tossing around is uh, just the change in uh, the rules to kind of extend this campaign and the way that the, the uh, uh, kind of the proportional uh, Voting. I mean, any of you guys want to pick up on that one? What impact did that have? Did that draw this campaign out longer? Did that ultimately, uh, to the nominee's detriment in the general? Or did that, as it was intended, allow for uh, other candidates to come forward? Thank Matt. You. Thanks, Jan. <clears throat> um, you know, obviously, the process this time, and, th and this is why when we were doing our early planning on the Romney campaign, we never expected to to win this early, just because of the proportional allocation of the of the delegates. And, uh, you know, early on when the RNC was figuring out the rules back in 2010, you know, we knew that we didn't want an, an extended calendar. Uh, we wouldn't publicly say that, though. Um, but behind the scenes, some of our supporters were focused on trying to, to, to keep the calendar a little less expansive. And um, so, you know, we knew going into this, it wasn't going to be, you know, primaries aren't easy, first off. Who was doing that? <clears throat> there would be individuals such as uh, Ron Kaufman, uh, who works at the RNC, uh, who were focused on that. But obviously, when the rules changed, publicly we came out and said, you know, we're for it. Because, you know, those are the rules, and you can't be against the rules. Um, and um, at the end of the day, you know, we knew we had to be patient throughout the process, and there would be people that uh, rose up to the top, and we would have to just stick to our 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 strategy in the primary. Uh, but at the end of the day, we had, we we had to spend eighty seven million dollars, and and you know, we we came out in April against an incumbent candidate that just had so much money, and maybe if it wasn't an incumbent president we were going against, it would have been great for everybody. And I know a lot of people thought that the Obama-Hillary Clinton campaign made, every, you know, made President Obama stronger. And there were cert certainly parts of the primary that made Governor Romney a better candidate. But at the end of the day, when we've spent $87 million, and these are $2,500 checks that we can't collect uh, 
until after the convention, uh, you know, it was kind of it was a it was a disadvantage. So do you and, think? I mean, at the, I mean, your bottom line would be that change ultimately hurt the nominee. Yes. So looking forward, and this is for the group. I mean, should the party stick with the proportional system? So looking forward with the the uh, the, the group here, should the party stick with the system as is, the proportional vote, or should the party revert to the, the winner-take-all style system for 2016? What do you folks think? Let me dive in here. Dave Carney, I see you stepping up to the mic. Yeah, well, not stepping, but uh, rolling, sort of. Ambling. Um, you know, when you, ha you, know, you have an infrastructure and a depth of support, uh, you know, of a front-runner, you know, Governor Romney, you know, you have some, some ability to affect the rules. But generally, um, you know, camp, can, candidates who get in the race at, at the, you know, in the normal cycle aren't running for real, you know, for the second time. Right. You know, the ability to impact the rules are, are, are minimal. Because in, particularly if you try to affect the rules and lose, uh, it can, you know, it can, it can hurt your sort of uh, image and your respect amongst, uh, you know, party activists, things like that. You know, the, are you, do you care about primary voters? And if you care about primary voters, then proportional is the way to go because, you know, 40% voted for somebody and 30% voted for somebody else. 30, you know, those 30% should be represented at the convention. So you think stick with it then, Dave? No I'm, uh, no, I'm not. I'm saying if you care about what the primary voters have to say, then proportional is a fair way to do okay. it. If you care about, you know, let's get this thing done and cook, get this thing cooked so we can go, you know, try to fight, you know, the, you know, the general election, then you want winner take all. But weren't those and rules And if you want this basically establishment, you know, let's get this thing over, you know, the guys with the money, the guys who have, you know, people like you fawning over them every day, uh, you know, you want to get this over with. That, you, you, we have a higher, you know, everyone in, the, in, a, in, a, in a year, everyone's going to know who the conventional wisdom is of who's going to be our nominee in 016. Yeah. And that is going to help, you know, drive that candidate, you know, pretty far. But primary voters, and our party is very small d democratic, that, you know, they, I don't think, would stand for the ability to go back to the, the kingmaker, you know, what they perceive as the insiders telling them, you know, who's going to so you think win. It's here to stay then. Yes. But, I mean, and, and I would say it worked. John Ray Bender? To some degree. I mean, and I'll represent Rick Santorum. Here's, here's, you know, he spent between him and his super PAC, let's say, $27 million and went pretty darn far because of the way the system was set up. I'm guessing probably the, the, the nominee spent with his, his campaign and super PAC probably in the 120 to 130 million range. Yet, we were able to have a continuous primary and not wrap this thing up over after three states, which I think for the party was a positive thing. I would even argue that the prolonged debates was a positive thing and probably one of the reasons Mitt Romney won the first debate against the president. What I do think is a problem is when there's inconsistency. Florida being a winner-take-all state yeah. all of a sudden in the middle of nowhere changes strategies dramatically. Texas having to go to the end of the line right. because of changes down there changed the, the, the system dramatically. So I think it needs to be more balanced and more consistent, but I, I would argue that to many degrees the system worked. Um, can we do a show of hands uh, on this question? Were there too many debates? Yes. yes. Too many debates. The Bachman folks say no. Keith? And wait, well, they the have their debate guy wait, here. Wait, did Vince raise his hand? Did you raise your hand? No, I didn't. Okay. All right. And, and so we'll start with the Bachman campaign. Go. 
I mean, I don't think there were too many debates. I mean, it, the timing might have been bad on some of them, but certainly the debates had a huge impact both on the primary and the general election this time. Now, full uh, disclosure, Brett, you're a debate guy. Well, yeah, I understand that, but I, I think, uh, you know, the, the airwaves were so crowded this time that voters really used the debates to make a lot of decisions about candidates, and that was seen in how the results bore out. I mean, Gingrich's campaign came back twice on the back of debates. Our campaign was put on the map because of two debates. So, uh, uh, and, and Florida and South Carolina swung because of debates. So, you know, I think debates mattered. They gave the public a chance to see the candidates outside of the, of the paid media campaign, which I thought was pretty important. Vince? Well, no, we like debates. And, um, you know, in the course of uh, the year, different things happen in the public, you know, whether it's the super committee and, and voters want to know how the various candidates are going to speak about issues facing the country, whether it's a high price of gasoline in the spring. What are the candidates going to say? How are they going to illustrate leadership? Um, and, you know, mentioned a lot of uh, television ad money. Um, you know, at times distortive of records. Well, those can be clarified in debates. And it's a very authentic uh, reality, seeing the debates as opposed to 30-second attack ads. All right, so what's the downside well, I, to the yeah, debates? I see Ana Navarro moving to the mic back there, the Huntsman campaign. Maybe if our guy had been better at debates, we would like him better. <laughs> but since he wasn't, I, I actually thought we did have too many debates, and Why? I also thought it hurt What's the, the downside? General. The downside was that they were trying to outright wing each other, and then we never get back to the middle in the in the general. The downside was that we had a um, terrible discussion that haunted Governor Romney all along about immigration that happened during the debates. So there were issues that came up during the debate, debate after debate, that I think just uh, you know made it more difficult during the general. Linda. We feel that the debates, <clears throat> excuse me, were, were very profitable. Um, obviously, the first debate especially helped Mr. Kane um, get on the map, shall we say, and help people understand who right, he I mean, was. Of course, if you guys remember in that first debate on May 5th, the focus group said that Herman Kane, who no one knew, was the, right. the winner of right. that debate. And which uh, Romney not only that, I mean, we didn't have a lot of money, which was no secret. Uh, so the debates really helped to get our message out, but in a sense as well. Um, uh, I was just talking with someone from Minnesota who said, other than the debates, like they would have never really seen the candidate, seen the candidates at all. Like, and they said, especially like Romney, Governor Romney, um, they said, you know, other than the debates, they re they really never even had much contact. So, um, I feel that the debates and extra debates are very, very helpful for citizens all across the country uh, to Matt hear Stewart, more and more. The so, the uh, debates push your candidate too far to the right, do you think, and hurt you guys in the general? No, I don't, I don't think that was a problem. I, I think that the, I think these debates, this cycle began with the best of intentions and spun sort of out of control. Um, the biggest um, problem from my perspective, um, it, and a, a lot of times when we do talk here, you know, we'll be expressing our own opinions. It's not a unified opinion about things inside the, the Romney campaign will have difference of opinions on things. Um, my, my feeling is that um, the having the news organization sponsor these uh, began to give it a commercial quality that at a certain point became almost degrading to the candidates and that they should have been more serious. And 
there's something odd about this process. Can, you, can I interrupt? Could you, I mean, mm-hmm. when you say degrading to the candidates, mm-hmm. is there any moment that you, I mean, right now, kind of, or two that jumps well, out Well, I you? think the way that, that, that the, the candidates were being introduced, that we were, it, it was sort of more of an American Idol kind of model rather than a serious presidential debate versus the way, say, that they're done in the uh, Commission of Presidential Debates, where they're more serious. And there's also something very odd about the branding of these debates by you know, large multinational corporations like the, you know, the CNN debate or the Fox debate or the NBC debate. I, I, I think in an ideal world, you would have debates put on and news organizations would cover them in the same way we do the rest of the campaigns. We, we, we don't have, you know, a, a, a CBS-sponsored news conference or a CBS-sponsored rally. Um, and I would like, uh, in the future, I think there has to be some, I, ideally, you'd have some mechanism to control this. But, Stuart, let me just, just follow up with you, if I could, to the first answer you gave, that you didn't think the debates hurt your candidate in terms of how he ran in the general. The word self-deportation came out of your candidate's mouth at the the debate in Tampa. If it wasn't for that debate, I don't think Governor Romney ever says that phrase. That wasn't helpful for the can- for the candidate in the fall, was it? Listen, I think he was expressing an opinion. And no, no, but wasn't that hurt, that damaging to him in the fall, though? I mean, going to Anna's point, that did the debates actually? Because again, I mean, you do have, uh, you know, the media is asking these questions, and it's and people are looking for interesting uh, I, exchanges. Listen, I, did it? Start I don't have to a problem with Romney that. To the I, right I think in when you run for president, him. you should expect to get asked tough questions, and you should expect to be placed in a lot of situations where you have to answer tough <laughs> questions, and be that in a um, op-ed interview or wherever. Um, there's no um, gotcha quality or ambush quality to debates. Everybody knows what they're doing. They're up there. Um, so um, that, that, that doesn't. But he wouldn't have used that phrase in a stump speech. He wouldn't have used that phrase probably in a print interview. Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make that assumption at all. He said what he wanted to say. But there's no pressure on that stage to outflank one another on the right when you're trying to get the Republican nomination. Mm-hmm. Listen, uh, I think if you go back, one of the advantages that Governor Romney had in this process in general, but in these debates, was having gone through these debates before. And one of the things that we talked about was that debates are never about the room. And you're going to get booed. And that was very true at the Tea Party debate, I think, in Orlando, uh, which is a very raucous Mm -hmm. event. Um, And we were laughing about it before is that you know this is going to be like rock'em sock'em and they're going to boo everybody and it happened it it was like they didn't it was fine it just happens but that wasn't the structural problem of the debates the the structural problem was particularly when there was 10 candidates or whatever it was it was always governor romney versus whoever was the next highest in the polling data and what they would always say to us on the calls before time we want equal time for every candidate great the candidates in many cases who didn't have big budgets, that's how that'd be known. But let's take when Governor Perry was up and it was Governor Romney, the first question would go to Governor Romney or Governor Perry about the other candidate, and then they would do a rebuttal about the other candidate, and then they'd be asked the next person another same question about their candidate. And we'd be halfway into the debate and half the participants didn't even have a, a question. And so the debates took on this air of who could knock off whatever candidate other than Romney was coming up 
And could we always make this a, somewhat of a referendum on Romney being the front runner? Phil well, Lester, with, with yes. well, we, we would have rather them ask you the questions. Well, let me. Well, that, that, that tells why I think they need to be more serious. Right, the, Phil Muster with the Palenti campaign. You guys had a memorable uh, debate moment that potentially. That's one way to put it. Uh, <laughs> that a lot of people think ultimately hurt the campaign. I mean, do you think that did? Was that sure. a defining moment for the campaign and for the candidate? When, yes. And Obamacare, if you guys had forgotten. He pulled the punch. Yeah, Who no, could forget that? No, it was, but I mean, look, you know, uh, it was a moment, and, and uh, I don't think you blame the medium or the context of the moment. It was, it was clearly, a, you know, for our campaign, um, uh, a key, you know, a key event uh, that, uh, that, that shaped the contour of, of our race from that point forward. But I wanted to turn your question a little bit forward-looking, because you asked about 2016, yeah. and here's what I think is going to happen, because uh, some of the, the viewpoints in this room are being reflected. I think that you're going to find uh, at the very beginning of this process there was a good faith effort to actually contain and limit the number of debates. And a lot of people in this room sat around the table and said, is this a good idea or a bad idea? Right. The problem was we all had different interests, right? Uh, John Brabender and uh, the Kane people and the Polini people to some different degrees at the beginning of this race uh, were looking at, uh, you know, uh, the, the right role for the party in the debates. I suspect as you look forward, the Republican Party uh, will probably re- introduce that, meaning the, the chief rub is, why are we outsourcing control of the debates to liberal news media organizations? Why are we not, to Stewart's point, you know, putting some kind of framework around this that's got common sense and giving it to people that, uh, frankly, are going to allow us to drive our message as opposed to kind of play the, you know, the, the, to the narrative that uh, the scripts of the, of the major news organizations write. So I think that process will be revisited formally in the next year, and uh, it's something that you should look for, because I think there were probably too many of these things. Is that something the RNC would kind of take control? I mean, how would Therein you lies the rub, because, you know, structure of the National Party Committee versus yeah. the Tea Party movement versus the interests and needs of individual of candidacies yeah. are all very different. But I just think it's something that is clearly going to be rethought about again and discussed with more seriousness. It was very, very difficult trying to, to deal with organizations on the debate. Because ultimately, the only power you have is that you won't show up. And but is that much of a power? Because then could the no, organization? No, that's not much yeah. of a power. It's yeah. like, okay, because don't show up. Because that could be held against you, presumably. Exactly. So, which means you really don't have any power. Which means you end up showing up. Which means you, you lose control of it. And so you end up doing 20 debates. Let me go to Keith, because when uh, uh, we were talking earlier about the differences in time, the questions people get. I know that there was some frustration on the Botman campaign about some of the time. Well, that's a good Brett thing, um, and I'll get to it in a second. I would, I would be overcautious on re-changing the system, whether it, the primary system or the debate system, based on, a <clears throat> on an incumbent president election the next time is an open cycle. And I think it's a, it's a different landscape of having both parties looking for a nominee and vetting that nominee, so I would I would caution over swinging a little bit of trying to make the system work for this campaign for the next cycle on certain aspects. Well, on on that point and, and some of the things that people are tossing out now that would change four years from now, of course, would be the straw poll. Obviously, uh, that was something uh, that was pretty successful for you, uh, not so for you. What are your thoughts <coughs> on the straw poll? Well, we debated it. We gave her the opportunity to get out of it and. Uh, and she thought she needed to do it. Why? Um, it's, I think, uh, kind of the narrative of being her home state, um, uh, proximity to Minnesota. Um, she is a very frugal person and did not want to spend money on 
stuff that didn't make any sense, and, and that was a pretty big hurdle. And of you what say the straw poll makes no sense. Well, is that what you're saying? it's a fundraiser. Yeah. Um, it's really not a, it's not a real thing from the standpoint of it's, you know, you're you're drawing from a circle of just a couple of hundred miles. Really, you may have people traveling longer distances in Iowa, but it's really a. <laughs> A, a central Iowa caucus and not necessarily a, a statewide caucus. I, I would also just mention one thing. One of the biggest impacts we found on this campaign was the movement of Florida primary. Um, here we are. We built ourselves to get out of Iowa, have a have a prolonged New Hampshire experience and a South Carolina period because there was period in between. And when they moved Florida, and remember it was like October something like that, that that happened very late. Um, when you look back at that and then everything else got compressed up and we really didn't know when some of these caucuses and dates were going to occur. We locked into debates and then you had other commitments that you had. We mm -hmm. had a book tour and some other things. Um, debates way on the west coast, travel days and, uh, and a couple of holidays in there. It made it very difficult to then play in three states and it really compressed it and even I think, you know, in my years of being in New Hampshire uh, primaries and South Carolina primaries, I don't think those states got to have their fair share of their unique yeah, issues. Well. Let's go, uh, before we go on to that, let's stay on the straw poll, though. I mean, I hope that the, I hope that one of the legacies of the 2012 campaign um, is that uh, what I would say, if, you know, top-tier presidential candidate, candidates don't chase the shiny object in the straw poll. It's a circus. It's not a caucus. It's a joke. Um, and if, uh, you know, we made a fundamental, I think, strategic miscalculation about uh, the level of investment that we chose to deploy there, uh, in part necessitated by the need to uh, gain traction and momentum and try and secure financial support. But ultimately, the, uh, the straw poll, I think, is, is, uh, has run its course in terms of the contest for Iowa in that it's unrepresentative of the uh, broader contours of the, con of the caucus going electorate that turns out. And, and interestingly, it's, it's, it's really more of a celebrity contest. And, you know, I've worked for Keith Nahigian in 1996. He's probably the best organizer I've ever met in Republican politics. And the fact that Michelle Bachman got in the race in May uh, and managed to win the straw poll in August is amazing because it's not something you just kind of wake up and think about doing. It takes a lot of planning and timing. But it wasn't just the straw poll, Phil. Phil, why did Governor Pawlenty feel the need to engage Congresswoman Bachman that summer? Like, take us back to last summer, before the straw poll. Why did he engage, or why did he go negative on uh, Bachman? What did he see in the polling that said do that? Well, we weren't polling. Um, you know, we weren't polling that, that particular time in terms of any really specific depth. Uh, but it was clear that, you know, Michelle was, uh, you know, galvanizing the Tea Party support that uh, was going to, you know, we, we, felt, we felt the need to kind of amplify the facts about her record and uh, her background with respect to her service in the Congress. And ultimately, I'm not sure that you could debate the merits of whether or not that it probably was helpful to the broader cause of the race. I'm not necessarily sure it was impactful or helpful for us in the short term as it relates to the straw poll, because ultimately that was a celebrity contest uh, that, you know, I would think was driven by a small faction of highly motivated, yeah. uh, ideologically driven voters. When you saw how the race unfolded, though, and with candidates kind of becoming the next alternative to Romney, was it just a mistake for Pawlenty to have gotten out so soon, or did he have no choice? Uh, what, you know, I think if you ask the governor, he would, he would say this, which is, uh, he, you know, we, we put together, a, I, th I thought, a very good uh, early plan. We were well positioned out of the gate. Uh, we put some big ideas on the table. We had a shot, and we, we missed our shot. 
um, the, uh, the the miscalculation. I, I think he, we would all agree that probably uh, from a strategic perspective, betting big in the Iowa straw poll, especially in the context of Governor Perry's entrance, which was imminent at that point in time, uh, Michelle Bachman's rise probably should have put a, a repause and a rethink, you know, on the whole thing. But you know, sure, had had we uh, kind of I think looked at the the situation under a slightly less uh, a lower level of, uh, of of kind of post New Hampshire. New Hampshire debate uh, duress, I would say, uh, with the financial kind of realities of the campaign crashing, um, the the decision I think would have been to obviously stay in because the lesson is pretty clear. If you kind of hung around, you had your shot in the sun. Yeah. And if if Tim had had his shot in the sun, I think we felt that uh, to that discussion last night, if we were the alternative to Romney at the end, that both on resume, bio. And background, we were going to be in a favorable position to compete. So, was it a strategic decision to try to knock out the other alternatives to Romney, and then that just failed? Instead of, you know, you were trying to be the alternative Romney early on, instead of the last man standing strategy. Well, we we had we had put a lot of diligent work into building networks in the early two states that we thought, with uh, with an application of uh, <laughs> visibility and resources, could grow to scale. And so, we built a campaign that I think was more sophisticated and more developed than a lot of the other campaigns. And our goal was to essentially use the June month to start to uh, kind of raise the bar for ourselves so that we could fill the, what you got to remember, Chris Christie was lingering yeah. around and all these other candidates were and weren't. Haley was in, John Thune was in, Mike Pence in, not in. Yeah. What it did is it locked up a lot of the donor class. And so what we were trying to do is unlock the donor class in June, do that on the springboard of a good debate in late June, and then use that to get momentum into the uh, Iowa struggle. Okay. Uh, R Rob Johnson, Dave Carney. Yes. You, you guys are here from the Governor Perry campaign, but you worked for Newt before that. Yeah, nice and awkward. Um, we heard so much from Newt about the consultant-driven campaign that he was forced to run in the early part of, of, of his bid. What exactly did he mean by that from your perspective? And what did you guys want him to do that he pushed back on? Well, first of all, <clears throat> we couldn't force Newt to do anything. <laughs> so if it was consultant, it was Newt-driven. Um, and Even back then it was Newt-driven? Absolutely. Okay. And uh, I think we were very honest when we uh, – departed um, that there was just a fundamental to use his words uh, frankly there was a fundamental uh, <clears throat> difference of opinion on how to run a campaign we we, we what do you uh, want to do I wasn't a consultant by the way Dave he was talking about Dave I was the campaign manager he was a consultant <laughs> um, but w we felt like you needed to go to the states and talk to the people and uh, uh, not uh, <laughs> and and do it more than a day at a time. What do you want to do? Um, he, he wanted to he wanted to go to the states and talk to the people, but a day at a time. He wanted to uh, do television. Um, he wanted to wait for the debates, and turns out that was probably pretty good. How strategy. much of that was driven by Calista, his wife? Um, the schedule. Yeah. Uh, they were they were a team, um, <laughs> and so I, I think uh, a lot was driven by the team. All right. So what, when you guys left the Newt campaign, let that settle in for a minute. When you guys left the Newt campaign, what did you know about Governor Perry's intentions? Um, I knew what he had said publicly. Um, that was it? That was it. Uh, I knew what he, he had said publicly. Uh, and frank, uh, frankly, I didn't 
at that point, I didn't believe it because I had had so many private conversations with him beforehand. What was he, he saying in those conversations? I'm not running. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Dave? Um, yeah, no, in pro I mean, for, for years, he's, you know, the, you know, had privately and publicly said he had no interest and want to do it, thought he could have a bigger role in impacting, uh, you know, sort of the Federalist movement, the Tenth Amendment movement from outside in Washington. And, uh, you know, that, you know, that, that was a very radical departure from everything he had said, everything we had done uh, over the years uh, to sort of position him to be a, a, a try to help lead that sort of states' rights uh, Federalist movement was designed to do that and not designed to, you know, to be a candidate for president. Clearly, there were, had he given any sort of indication, uh, inkling, you know, well, let's think about it or let's not rule it out or, well, you know, let's wait and see. Anything like that, you know, there, I think there, there are, you know, hundreds of things that uh, we could have done differently to better get him better prepared to run. I mean, you know, when you, you know, have never talked to legislators and county uh, chairmen and you know, political activists, in the early states, uh, you know, and you're doing that, you know, days after, days before getting, you know, getting in the race and, and raising money and getting up to speed on issues, clearly that's the time. So did he have a grasp of how difficult it would be getting in so late, and when did it kind of dawn on him that playing catch-up was going to be well, that Dan, hard? Before, before we answer that, I, I think, you know, I know Matt and Stewart read the book, Fed Up. If you're going <laughs> to run for president, we, he, we would have never written that book. <laughs> I mean, it's what he believes. Ponzi scheme. Right, but you would have written that book later. And, and I just, yeah, I also want to finish up on, yeah. on the new thing. Uh, first of all, you know, he, he's a brilliant guy, and he has, you know, millions of ideas, and, uh, you know, he's not somebody that, you know, you know, he's looking for, he's looking for help. He's not looking for, you know, direction. Uh, but, you know, I think fundamentally it comes down to fi finances. He did not have the resources. Uh, didn't have, have the financial infrastructure to, to support yeah. paying a bunch of consultants hanging around to design to implement a campaign that was not going to have the resources to, to execute. And he wanted, to, you know, and, and basically he, he had originally we were going to do a both. We were going to have a really aggressive multi-million dollar effort uh, field operation. New it was, yeah. yeah. And we're going to do all of this new inter engagement in social media and have, you know, basically cutting edge uh, uh, you know, sort of third way to run a campaign. And on Perry, the resource. On Perry, though, let's stick with Perry for a second. Well, I'll just answer your first question. I understand. The straw poll is August 13th. Yeah. That's also the same day that Governor Perry gets in the race. When, though, did Governor Perry actually decide to run? He announced on August 13th, but when did he decide, this is a go, I'm going to run? What day? Uh, sometime. The actual final decision, I think, uh, where, you know, sort of no co going back was, like, August 6th or 7th. It was that close to the actual announcement. It was right after the, uh, we had a big event in Houston, the response, uh, and it was, it was a prayer rally at the Astrodome, right? Over 30,000 people showed up, uh, and it was, it was pretty close to the way our, it was pretty close to right after that. And was that, I mean, what did it, what, what did it, you say, you know, changed his mind. What was it that said, look, I got to do this. Well, I mean, I, I know he said he was called to do, I mean, what I, was it? You know, I honestly, uh, I don't know. I know that uh, he was getting, you know, great encouragement to run from folks privately and publicly, uh, both in Texas and outside of Texas. I think there was, a, you know, a, a, you know, I think the reason there was a 1,700 candidates in the race over the course of the campaign was there was always a feeling that there was something missing in the Romney candidacy, that there was a missing something missing, and whether it was, you know, policy ideas or whether it was, you know, uh, in, 
passion and enthusiasm, whether it was um, uh, debate. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but there was just something there, and I think that, you know he felt that. Uh, I think his, uh, you know, you know, on paper, uh, an excellent record to be able to communicate when country is really off track and you know at the time losing jobs and you know we had a pretty good jobs message. Uh, I think it was a weight of all the things. I don't think it was a single thing. I don't think, he didn't wake up. I don't think he woke up, uh, you know, on August 6th and said, okay, you know, let's go. I mean, it was a, a, a very short but pro well, thoughtful yeah, process wait. to get there. Well, we, you know, and we, we always knew we could raise a lot of money out of Texas, but right. I think something else that was encouraging or uh, encouraging, I guess is the right word, uh, in the latter part of July, <clears throat> we reached out to uh, a, a national network uh, led by Peter Terpelik, uh God bless his soul, uh, and we would invite 10 people and 100 people would show up in Austin, Texas. And we were doing this three times a week. So we were seeing 300 national fundraisers, uh, bundlers a week. And, you know, at the time, only one in five of the McCain elite donor bundlers were engaged in the yeah. race. So four out of five weren't. And they were showing up in Austin, Texas to meet this to meet Rick Perry, and it was very encouraging. Matt Rhodes, how did the entry of Governor Perry to the campaign change your strategy? Um, <clears throat> first off, up to the to the point of Governor Perry getting in the race, uh, the candidate in the race that we were most concerned about up to that point was Governor Pawlenty, because to the point what what Phil Musser has has made with their strategy of if Governor Pawlenty was able to get through the travails of the Iowa straw poll uh, and was to be able to go on and, and win the Iowa caucus. He was one of those candidates that could pull off with his retail politic way uh, both Iowa and New Hampshire. Right. And if we had lost Iowa and New Hampshire to, to Governor Pawlenty, uh, things would have been pretty bleak for, for our campaign. Um, when Governor Perry got in the race, certainly, um, you know, we had a lot of respect for his record when it came to jobs in the economy because the way people were talking at that time, you would think every job in America that was created was actually created in Texas. <laughs> and up to that point, we had put a, an onus uh, or an emphasis, excuse me, on running an econ uh, uh, a campaign focused on jobs in the economy. And so we knew that this was going to be um, an obstacle uh, to us moving forward. And that's why uh, very quickly uh, during the course of Governor Perry's entrance into the race, uh, you know, Governor Pawlenty had left and we made it, um, uh, we, we made it a point to, to contrast uh, on Governor Perry's record. And it included uh, the initial debates uh, and the interactions and um, on those stages. And obviously, Rob made a point about fed up and you know I give credit to Stuart Stevens as the individual on the campaign who fell in love with fed up uh, we just kind of executed on the on the on the strategy behind it uh, but you know we made with with Stuart's guidance uh, we decided to put an emphasis on uh, Governor Perry's uh, position on Social Security and not go after jobs in the economy did your polling show that that was his biggest vulnerability Perry's we ever, uh, I don't think we ever really polled it, to be honest. Okay. Um, Matt, you actually uh, 
said something very interesting. You said before Governor Perry got in, you guys were most concerned about Governor Pawlenty. But I'm curious about, of the candidates who didn't run, and there were a lot of candidates who didn't run this cycle, which of those candidates were you guys most concerned about? Was it Chris Christie? Was it uh, Jeb Bush? Sarah Palin? Who was it? When you're, to win your party's nomination, you have to run your campaign. Right. And it goes to the point, again, that, that Phil made. You know, we made a decision. We weren't going to chase shiny objects. We weren't going to do straw polls. We had done straw polls the last time. Uh, one of the things that, you know, obviously the debates are important in the Republican yeah. primary process. But one of the reasons why, you know, 20-plus debates uh, are, is a bit too much is because it takes away your ability to run your campaign. But who are you guys most concerned about who didn't run? Um, we had respect for a lot of the people that names were floated. But if you're not in the race, you're not in the race. Okay. Let me go back to uh, uh, Governor Perry. You know, obviously, kind of the narrative coming out of the uh, his withdrawal was that the debates did him in. You know, the the three agencies and I mean, what happened? What happened with that campaign? What? Why? You know, after jumping in, skyrocketing to the top, becoming the candidate that the you know uh, the Romney uh, uh, guys were most concerned about. And then it just all fell apart. Why? Was it, was it the debates that he got in too late, that it was never viable, the money? I mean, what was it? Well, I could talk to my therapist, but I still haven't uh, <laughs> that's, that's the right answer. But, uh, you know, it, it's one of two things. Uh, I mean, we made a lot of mistakes, okay? so Like what? You know, just small, small mistakes that... Uh, like what? But I, I, the biggest, the big tactical or strategic mistake is, we, you know, you know, we should have... If he was going to do this, we should have started it, you know, years ago. I mean, he's chairman of the RGA. was, you know, governor of Texas. You, you know, the session, the legislature meets 140 days every two years. He has a lot of time on his hands. He could have been doing lots of things, you know, going to help other people around the country, going to meet people, um, uh, become a, a, a very helpful in Ohio and in, uh, in Iowa and uh, New Hampshire and South Carolina, some of these, you know, important states uh, in meet donors and things like that but you know so we didn't have that luxury of time and two is we should have waited I mean we should have waited actually longer it clearly the, the you mean waited longer to in get in to we get should in. spend more time you know when we when we decide okay let's take a look at it and you know is there a possibility of what are, what are the what are the as Rob taught we you know these three questions we tried to answer and put a, a framework of a plan together uh, it was based on the fact you know we need to just you know, we need to get in because, people, you know, Romney didn't start locking people up, mm -hmm. you know, more than he had, which was, you know, he had a lot of people locked up already. And I'm not just talking fundraising. I, th I think fundraising was we, get, we had unlimited ability to raise money. That was not our ever a problem. It was a matter of how to collect it. Um, our problem was the political side, you know, the political support. And, and Governor Romney's team was excellent and had a long head start and it was locking people up. And a lot of people were waiting to see if anybody else get in the race. And, you know, we were concerned that, you know, we couldn't wait till, we should have waited. We should wait till November maybe, or, or maybe the middle of October because of the Florida, you know, move up and, the, you know, how the de uh, declaration by Secretary of State to be on the ballot. But we, it would have given us more time to be prepared, uh, more time to do some of the groundwork that's necessary, uh, get better prepared on the issues. And you wouldn't have had the September debates. Right. I mean, you know, li listen, this is the craziest thing about debates. First of all, you know, first, there's. First of all, there are panels. They weren't debates. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. First of all, this is the crazy. The President of the United States never debates, okay? No one, he, that's a skill that is unrequired, unnecessary. It's not the fuck, uh, it's not the <laughs> Prime Minister, he doesn't stand there and take questions for a half hour. Nobody ever questions the President in, in public. 
There's never, you know, Putin, he do not argue on the red phone. I mean, this is crazy. Okay. Number two, the RNC's never, ever enforced anything. I mean, the, the idea that the RNC, like they did last, was going to sort of fix this problem, that's, that's crazy. And the, the establishment candidate is not going to want to do debates, the front runner. And everybody who has no money wants to get, you know, on for 12 minutes <laughs> on national cable TV. Yeah. Because it's their, one, it's their shot. It's free. You know, and the idea that you go from California to Florida, to California with a holiday in between in 10 days, that, that's illuminating. Whatever happened to town meeting, whatever, can't, Matt is 100% right. Candidates got to run their own campaigns. But the, the rumor, folks, the debates were your guys' only shot. What kind of, what kind of crazy idea is that? <laughs> Carlos, tell them. We hated the debates. <laughs> we really hated the debates. Um, no, I, I think, you know, we do need some debate reform. I think um, Stuart made a great point that it's basically corporate sponsored you know it's it's uh it's very undemocratic you know i know you guys have you guys um, were pining to get into these debates now you're knocking them huh that was your whole strategy no we know no everyone had their time to shine you know the and it was because of debates you either you either you know michelle bachman shined one perry you know we we um, shined before the debates Exactly. So, so that was part of, like I said last night, part of our strategy was, you know, were the debates. Unfortunately, we never got in. I know Gary Johnson never got in. And I don't know what's, what's you know, we do need debate for him, though. But it's sad that two governors were not allowed in. Okay. Yes, ma'am. One of the things that I think we need to remember about the debates is uh, who we're ultimately trying to serve, and that would be the citizens of the country. That would be the voters who are looking for information, many of whom never get to live in Iowa and see the candidates, you know, every, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But, um, you know, who do we serve? And as journalists, you know, what is your job? Your job is to give factual information to the citizens of this country. And so, you know, we need to remember what's the purpose of the debates. And, you know, there's positives and negatives about how many, where they were, you know, all that. And uh, uh, Stuart brought up really good points about who's in charge of the questioning. Okay, Uh, Trig V. Olson, you are sitting next to Matt Rhodes, which is fitting to a lot of folks in this room because there was much chatter about the Romney-Ron Paul I feel like Ron Paul at the CBS News foreign policy debate, 60 seconds, but maybe we'll be able to raise another million dollars money bombing. What was was the nature of the contact between the Paul campaign and the Romney campaign? Were you talking to to Matt Rhodes? No, I'm going to answer the – I'm going to answer the – I'm going to use my own debate strategy. I'm going to answer the question I want to talk about rather than talking about what you want to talk about. And I'll follow up. This is typical media attacks to right, use answer. a new Gingrich strategy. Right. Um, I, I think the thing with the debates, I mean, there was there was some effort, and it started, you know, with a conversation between Jesse Benton and Ginsburg, um, based off of 2008, to try and get all the campaigns together to talk about the debates and to try and impose at least a little bit of will back on. The problem with the number of debates is you can't really get at it because everybody has their own interests. So what ended up happening is we're not going over 90 minutes. You know, we don't want to have a green room that's 6,000 miles away. So you know, Stuart and I have to ride around in a golf cart with a guy who gets lost because he doesn't know where he's going on the University of Tampa campus. All right. All right. And furthermore, why are Stuart and I on the same golf cart? Because it, it only reinforces the notion we have an alliance from people like you. No, but. but <laughs> The important thing that one of the things that I think is missing from this conversation that matters and the debates reinforce this is, you know, and I I don't know how to refer to it 
any differently, but there's kind of a seventh grade girls, and I don't mean any disrespect to seventh grade girls, but there's kind of a seventh grade girls component to this, in that all the candidates are spending so much time at the debates and, you know, like Bob likes, you know, Joe and Joe doesn't like, you know, Frank and, and whatever. And so, you know, like last time, Huckabee and McCain really didn't, you know, there, there's been a lot of reporting about this. They didn't want Romney to get the nomination. Right. And so they ganged up. This time there, there was a tendency for candidates as somebody would rise, everybody would gang up on them. The question right. that I would like to ask is to, to Carney, you know, the one thing that I couldn't understand with you guys is when you guys did roll in, there was, you know, you had seven state troopers and Simi Valley was the first appearance with everybody else. And, 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 you know, all the rest of the campaigns were sitting around, well, here comes Rick Perry's riding high in the polls. You know, he's got seven state troopers with him. He's got this entourage. Who's he think he is? The prime minister of Britain? And let's all get him. And and so I, and I don't know if there's a way around it, but I do think that I, <laughs> I always wonder why. Do, I always wonder, you know, had the optics of your rolling into this dynamic of people who'd been traveling enter into the equation? Because I do think it mattered. Certainly mattered in my guy going after Jan Hillary Care, which. So did you put your own X on your back? That's the point, right? I mean, yeah. Did you, I mean, did you paint the on the well, X I, on I, his back? It goes to the. Uh, I guess the uh, success of the Texas Rangers to think there were only seven there. Believe me, it was a lot more than seven. Um, the uh, you know it's just a fact. It's it's a fact. It's a fact of life. There's you know a, a tremendous effort to you know dealing with an inc incumbent uh, you know um, and security issues to balance that. Same with the president. It's you know it's 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 a constant fight between. The protectees, people, and the protectors, and you know, there's just it's just sort of life. You know, they, you know, in hindsight, would we have preferred not to have jumped, you know, gotten in the race and things go so well, and you know, things happen and the poll numbers and you know, temporarily looking really great? Uh, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't trade that. I, I would rather have longer ramp up time, but once you get in, you sort of you want that. We we were not structurally sufficient to support that sort of meteoric rise uh, and we you know became a target just like most everybody else for their 15 days in the sunshine um, were a target and, you know we just didn't have the infrastructure in place to support you know that it, you know the candidates need to in order to be supportive uh, to be supported so but uh, security is always an issue um, you know it's a it's a high profile job there's a lot of people you know, it's just, it's, it's difficult and, you know, it's a constant battle. They would prefer to have, you know, machine guns actually out, not hidden, and uh, many of them and never leave the confines of a bulletproof, uh, bombproof, you know, uh, tunnel, you know, in the, underneath the Capitol. Stuart, you want to dive in here? Yeah, I, I just think it's really important to note that having run for president before was a great advantage for, for, for Governor Romney. and. I think it would be a great uh, mistake to think that uh, the candidates who are in this race that that ended up not getting the nomination or maybe didn't have such a good debate here or there are not candidates who could be president and who would not do a lot better next time they run. It, 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 there is nothing like running for president of the United States. And having run before is a great experience. And I think there were a, a bunch of tremendously talented candidates that would do really well and I think a real mistake to, to look and say okay 
had this stumble or that stumble, that means that that person's not up to that level playing the game. I, it's, watch these candidates. I think a lot of them will come back and do really well. Let me go back to uh, Dr. The point that Jonathan was making about Dr. Paul, though, in the debates, and obviously we're obviously spending more time than I thought we were talking about debates, but they were uh, a major part of this primary for different reasons for different candidates. But, you know, there would always be this effort to kind of attack Romney, attack Romney by the alternatives, but Dr. Paul really didn't do that in those debates. And it looked like there clearly was some kind of bond or alliance that he had struck with Romney. Why was that? Matt, do you want to tell me what I should say? No. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I, there's been a lot made of, of the idea that we didn't attack, um, that, that, that we didn't draw contrast with Mitt Romney in the way that we drew contrast with other candidates, whether it was the debates or, you know, through, through our paid media. Um, the reality is, um, you know, Dr. Paul, you know, we, we had lots of pieces of mail that drew contrast. Um, the Romney folks like to remind us about, you know, the day Mitt Romney announced we raised $1.7 million off of that with a pretty scathing um, Mitt Romney as the establishment. But strategically, we were never in a, in a place where we were competing with Mitt Romney for, for essentially establishment votes. Right. And so, um, so I think that matters. I think the other thing that matters is, you know, uh, on a personal level, you know, and Stuart alluded to this, it matters to have done it before for a lot of reasons, you know, but one of the things that mattered in that relationship is, you know, and it's been, it's been documented a lot, Ann Romney and Carol Paul became friends. Uh, Ron Paul considers, you know, Mitt Romney somebody that's a friend. They had shared a, a journey that had gone on for, for you know, four years. Um, and to some degree, they're at a similar station in life. They have, you know, five kids. So, you know, there were issues, certainly on foreign policy, where where he disagreed with Governor Romney. But, you know, strategically, you know, it was it was more important to draw a contrast with Rick Perry when he got in the race because he was taking votes, Tea Party type okay. voters from us in Iowa. Okay. So um, I want to ask a question. I Jonathan, think. can I can Please. I add one? One of the lessons learned in, in running, like Stuart said, you learned so much from, uh, you know, running before. And, and one of the things in the 2008 campaign, you know, we, we, many of us were former Bush Cheney staffers and we divvied up amongst various campaigns and we just weren't very respectful of each other. We would run into each other at debates and, you know, it was just like a level of, of immaturity, uber competition. Uh, you know, that was a, a mistake that I learned personally uh, running in 2008. Mm. And I think in politics it's so important, and this goes to the personal relationship between Governor Romney and Dr. Paul, show a little respect for yeah. each other. They debated each other 30, I think, 34 times right. over two campaigns. Well, speaking of relationships, Matt, you and Matt David, I know, are, are long friends. Um, but your candidates didn't seem terribly fond of one another, uh, well, Governor Romney and Governor Huntsman. Matt David, can you, can you talk about Governor Huntsman's relationship with Governor Romney and sort of his, his view of, of Governor Romney? Well, first on, on the debate topic, um, Stuart's absolutely right that the, it's really the circus nature of these, the American Idol, you know, 30 seconds to explain your position on immigration, raise your hand, the 10 to 1 question. 
that's what really kind of killed us. I think the, you know, the outside public watching those debates, it kind of framed the entire party in a negative light. And then Carney's right too, though, that if you're an underdog in the, in the race and you don't have money, like you need their immediate opportunity. Right. Can I stop so, you there? So you I just want to make sure you said the debates, I mean, you're talking more broadly, but you believe that those debates actually harm the party itself. Absolutely. I mean, I talked to, I remember we did a debate and I talked to a friend that was outside of politics the next day and he was like, were you at that crazy Fox debate? I was like, oh, it was actually CNN, but yes, I was there, but that, 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 that tells me a lot. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it did hurt the party. Why? Because it, the candidates looked less presidential. I mean, what, do you guys I agree? Mean, does everyone agree with this or does this seem... It's like Stuart said when we walk on stage, and it's like it's a cross between American Idol and a, and a football game, you know, you being announced point. onto the field. I mean, All right. it's just. It, 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 hold on a second. Now, Matt, though, talk about your boss's relationship with, with Governor Romney, because it's one of the most fascinating dynamics of this race. Did you like that dodge? Answer no, the question. I didn't mean to. <laughs> Answer the question. I, I, it's my fault. Sorry, I, I don't. Jonathan. I think. Sorry. I think the media want, wanted there to be a competition oh, come for on. a variety of reasons. Um, no, he liked, no. Rick, he liked Rick Perry. Governor Huntsman uh, didn't well, do anything listen, for Romney but, after the primary ended. They told us he to barely be endorsed. They told him. us to be candid. What's the Matt? backstory on their relationship? Here, here's what I here's what I believe on this. Well, the you know you had the, you had the Olympic story that everyone wrote about, right? That that Huntsman wanted it, and then Romney came in. I mean, I talked to uh, uh, Huntsman at length about this, and he 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 honestly felt that that whole story was overblown. It was really a process issue. It wasn't a personality conflict. But I, here's what I believe. I think they're both very successful, uh, very driven, very competitive people. So I think if you're if you're in a situation where you're running for president of the United States, you want to win. You know, I mean, I think that's and that you know they do have some family connections. I have a lot of friends. They're both Mormons. So I think that increases the level of competition. What was I mean, the the nature of the preparations that you guys put in place while Governor Huntsman was in China as the U.S. ambassador to get the campaign ready? How much did you guys do, and what did you do? Well, I mean, we, we laid out we laid out what we thought our, our, our path was going to be. We started doing opposition research on the, on this, the candidates. This is you, John Weaver. Yeah. Who else? Okay. Yeah, and Tim Miller. And did Governor Huntsman ask you to do this? Uh, no. Were you guys doing it with, without his knowledge? No, it was my. I mean, I had, at one point I had ruled out doing 2012. But uh, you were assuming that the ambassador to China wanted to have all this stuff laid out for him. Yeah. And not talking to him about it. Yeah, at the the first meeting was a little awkward. Uh, <laughs> and now like, his, like, his here, house in D.C. plan to run for president, literally. And, and what did he say? Um, he said, well, we'll look at it. And then we, we immediately dove into, we started briefing him on the issues. Where are you at on this? Um, you know, how you feel about your cap and trade is going to be an issue for you? How would you answer that now? And you could just tell, like, his wheels had been spinning. That was late April of 11. It was the weekend of the correspondence it was, dinner. It was, it was the early morning after the correspondence Did he, at that, that point, morning. tell you that he was in the race, he was going to run in the race? I could tell by that conversation that he was going to go. But and that was your said, first meeting? Yeah. Um, but he said he wanted to spend a couple of weeks talking to his family. Uh, we were going to test the waters going to New Hampshire and South Carolina. Jamar, can I say just one Please. thing on the inside game? I think one of the things that's really irrespective of the personal relationships between the principals that ran for president in this, in this campaign, one thing you've got to give Matt and the Romney campaign enormous credit for, and other people's in this room as well, they did a, a remarkable job at the inside relationship game. So Matt 
and other members of the Romney team were in constant contact with the other people who were leading the other enterprises. And they did so in a way that uh, as the campaign progressed and people got out of the race, uh, it, it softened, the, you know, uh, it softened the, the willingness for others to get behind the campaign. And it's really, really uh, testimonial to Matt's leadership in particular. But it's something that I think was totally missing in 2008 and that he did a terrific job because I know that you know, all of us in this, in this room talked to some degree. Uh, but he led this effort, and it made a big difference for his candidate as the primary progressed. You know, I want to follow up on something Matt was saying, talking about respect. There's uh, one campaign in this room who may feel they didn't get a lot of respect, and that's the Gingrich campaign on some of the ads that you guys ran. Um, so I'm going to ask you this, Vince. Uh, do you think, in addition to the negative ads that you were faced with in Iowa and in Florida, um, that the party leaders also were trying to tip the scales for Romney? Well, um, it certainly felt that way at times. Um, you know, uh, Rush Limbaugh gave an interview on Greta uh, at the end of December last year when he talked about his belief, because Greta asked him about all this ganging up on Gingrich, and he responded that he thought that there was a inside the Beltway establishment that was wired in and had a heart for Romney. Now, whether that was true or not, at times it felt that way. Um, you know, as I said last night, um, you know, we were trying to run a, a positive campaign. Uh, and we'd always believe that the, uh, sure. the voting public was sick of negative campaigns. That was a lesson from 1994 when they did the contract with America. It was not going to just be a attack Bill Clinton in the 94 by-election. It was going to be offering a positive program. And in a similar way, he wanted to offer a positive program. Um, Dave mentioned about the financial limitations of the campaign, which made it very difficult to respond to negative attacks when they came. Um, you know, Gingrich, I think, was very successful in his approach, not just in the debates. He did very well in the debates, but in, in several public gatherings in Iowa, uh, in key moments in October and November, um, he wowed the audiences. So he was winning, in, uh, in many ways, uh, lots of support on the ground, not just in debates, uh, but we were not prepared to deal with the onslaught of ads against us in Iowa. So did you feel like after uh, South Carolina, you may have had Romney on the ropes, but you just didn't have the money? I mean, or was it the resources, the? Well, you know, um, Newt has often talked about sort of, you know, you, you, you can have waves. And, uh, you know, take South Carolina. You know, the, we had two debates that week before the vote. Um, I think, um, I forget exactly what the polling was that week. Um, you know, I don't know how close it was, but the first debate took place, and I think Newt had two standing ovations, had enormous momentum. And then, of course, uh, the second debate, if you all remember, there was this question that John King led off the debate with about mm -hmm. uh, the ABC News interview with uh, uh, Newt's ex-wife. Um, and, you know, Newt gave an answer, and the place erupted in a standing ovation, and I turned to somebody on our team. I said, Newt either won the primary right, right then and there or lost Did it. he tell you guys before that debate that he was going to give that answer if the question no. came up? Not me. You didn't know. No. No. But so, you went, oh, so, sorry. so, if I could, so in the South Carolina, you know, the turnout, if, if figures are correct, it was a 30% bump up um, in turnout in South Carolina. Uh, it was a sh shattered the record from 2000. So there's a very positive momentum. Then you go to Florida, which has eight media markets. You know, if there was a place to, uh, to, to stop him, it had to be Florida. And we were, you know, they committed resources was to Was that do. your firewall, Florida? I mean, could any campaign? I mean, that, were you guys the only one that had the money? I mean, had we lost Florida, I wouldn't have said it was a firewall. Um, <laughs> and and to, to, to go to Vince's point, I, I do remember the polling from, from that 
debate, and I, or, I don't remember precisely, but I think there was that one night a, it was a double-digit shift toward Newt after that first debate, um, you know, 10, 10 to 15 points. Um, and if you'll notice in the, go back and look at it in the second debate, the governor did not attack Newt because it was not a moment where Newt was attacking him. It was not, it, it was just one of these things that happened that, that, that Newt, to his credit, seized a moment. He's very good at that. Um, and <laughs> what they think he'd do, he just kind of had to get out of the way. Um, Florida, we, we always felt very comfortable about winning Florida. Um, but, but we also felt that after we won New Hampshire, that you, we could lose states and just stay in and we would win. We might w lose some, win some, but that maybe this thing would go to June. But we planned the state of June. We went to the convention. We stayed at the convention. We were going to do what it took to win time-wise, and we couldn't control that calendar. So we were very steady and calm about it. But were you, I mean, how alarmed were you after South Carolina? Not, not at all, to be honest. Even though the state, I mean, you know, the. Not, not at all, because. Um, I mean, your poll no one ever runs up, though. I mean, you must have been surprised by. It was. Uh, it was like. Uh, just listen. Politics. Things happen. And, and Newt had great moments. We. He. Had, the governor grew his vote from four years earlier. He came in third. We didn't see anything happening that was damaging to the candidacy. No. It was not. He didn't lose because he had stumbled. He didn't lose because he had been attacked. He didn't lose. He came. His negatives didn't skyrocket. No. Newt had a good week. Get, I mean, give him credit. Well, in Florida, uh, Governor Romney had two great debates. And uh, at a practical level, uh, you know, Rhodes led an operation, which I think you were very aggressive on the early vote in, in uh, Florida. And we just, we were not as organized in that way to get the early vote. And I think they were running ads well earlier than, uh, than I think even the South Carolina debate. So they had quite an advantage on us. But you did have to spend a lot of money on, on ads in Florida, nevertheless. Yeah, let me just, let me just echo what first what uh, what Stewart said. Um, you know, you, we had to stay calm during South Carolina, but I can tell you, 15 minutes into the first debate in South Carolina, that was the last moment I thought about South Carolina the rest of the campaign. I shiftly, simply just sh shifted focus to Florida. Really? But so you got to stay calm. You knew that. You mean you South thought Carolina that? was cooked? You knew it was a great moment for the speaker, and. Yeah. This is the Myrtle Beach debate, the Fox the debate. The very first debate in South Carolina. Right. Within 15 minutes of the first debate, I shifted my my focus on, on Florida. And, um, you know, that's when we went and uh, doubled down on our efforts in Florida. I, sp I forget the specific amounts of money that we spent, um, but traditionally you do a 1,000-point a TV buy. and. For the Florida primary, we upped that to, yeah, at least 1,500, maybe more. Um, but I, I don't remember the exact numbers. And going into the, those Wait, Florida, going go going into the, those debates in Florida, <laughs> where obviously Governor Romney had two strong performances. What was your guys' Good. advice to Governor Romney in terms of engaging Newt? But I mean, and also we have. 
Brett here too, who worked on those yeah. debates. I'll defer to my friends across the table. <laughs> well, obviously the debates we knew were going to be very important coming back from the two great performances the speaker had in, in South Carolina. And each debate is, um, is, an, is an event in and of itself, and you shift your strategy and focus in each one of those. You usually go into each debate, at least in the primary, it's a little less complicated with probably three goals. And certainly um, our goal going into the Florida debates was to, to do contrast with the speaker. I don't know if you want to add anything, Stuart. You're a big part of that. Um, for each of these debates, we went through this process of what are our goals for this debate? And how do we accomplish those goals? And tried to accomplish those goals in the debates. Um, it, it was clear that we had the major competitor that emerged was the speaker, so we needed to engage the speaker. Um, there's a, a rule of thumb, you know, I, Brett could speak to this better than I, but a large percentage of the time, the most aggressive person in a debate, when people are engaging, will win that debate. Hmm. Um, and the, we, we, we had pretty clear-cut, simple goals. We needed to engage and win. All right, uh, I want to ask Dave Carney something before we forget this, this um, and that is the question of Governor Perry's health. To what degree did his back problems impact his debate performance? I think it had a, a big impact. How so? Uh, it just, you He's know, in pain. The, well, the, originally what the doctors and, and the, the patient thought, you know, in terms of recovery time, was supposed to be a very short period before he could get back on his, uh, to his regular routine. The whole campaign was built upon a very aggressive, arduous schedule of, of travel in order to make up for lost time. And uh, just never, you know, the, the, the situation during the summer and early fall, or in the fall, was just, you know, never completely right. You know, it was never. It was supposed to be two weeks or something like that, and it was, you know, uh, four months, and it was still uh, still a problem. So it, it had a, it had a lot to do. It's, it's just a fact. It's not an excuse. I think, uh, um, you know, we passed tort reform in Texas, so we can't actually sue the doctors for uh, what they told them. But you know, uh, my doctor tells me I need to lose a few pounds. I may not exactly listen to what he had to say. I listened to what I think I wanted to hear. So it could have been the patient. <laughs> The, the patient wanting to think it was two weeks and I'll be, you know, everything will be fine. But, uh, you know, it was a, it was, it was a minor thing and everybody's, uh, in, you know, this little procedure was minor and everybody's in the governor's mind and the office's mind, our minds, it wasn't, it was not a big deal in the slightest. Um, it was a in and out operation, which, you know, and. Uh, but do you procedure. think that had an effect it on was, his debate? major. Yes. I mean, was it just the, was he on medication? Was it just the no, standing, not, 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 that, you, you know, know having uh, to stand and he was in pain? Yeah, it was the standing, uh, you know, and it was uh, the ability to get a decent night's sleep, um, you know, in the travel, um, you know, it was grueling on his, on his body. So just, you know, difficult, more difficult to study, more difficult to get, be comfortable, um, you know, and, and again, this is a, you know, this is our specific problem because we had no time, so we would go to a debate site to do something, and we want to meet with 50 people, you know, have different meetings and try to reach out to, you know, to, to introduce Perry to different types of people. 
uh, that you know we would have spent the last five years doing you know and so you know you 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 can't do that you know when you, when you have no when you're you know you're in pain it does it's it's a it's negative meeting so you don't want to have it so you end up uh, really uh, hurting yourselves when you know because the debate and the debate prep takes so much time but it, it was it was definitely a factor it was you know it's not an excuse we we made many 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 other mistakes but it was a, it was a problem there was another um, uh, health issue that was raised on the campaign trail and that involved Michelle Bachman um, Keith do you think that had an impact on her uh, campaigning and um, uh, or at least the public's perception the media's perception of her as a candidate um, I it was incredible how much coverage it got I mean a person that has headaches probably no one would be in this room um, I, I thought it was it went to the question of commander-in-chief the button you know the phone that kind of thing and I think it's a higher standard for a, a woman running for office especially in a state like Iowa and uh, I think it it had a wait what do you mean a higher stand you mean like, women have to be yeah. healthier and well yeah I mean what women don't get out of Iowa Mrs. Clinton didn't get out of mm -hmm. Iowa Elizabeth Dole didn't get out of Iowa There's so why'd you campaign there in the first place huh why'd you campaign there in the first place well it was a decision we uh, you know collectively had to make but it, you know if you look at the number of statewide elected officials um, there's no women in the state Senate there's no congressional members uh, that are women you just saw a woman first lady get uh, beaten in Iowa it's a different place and I think the impact of that on a state like Iowa um, was a little bit more and it is kind of funny you mean her head that the migraines had resonated yeah. with voters more I think it was a bigger issue and remember it was an issue for like two weeks mm -hmm. it was kind of amazing I mean I was on the John McCain campaign in 2000 and we had to open up our medical records of John McCain and the you know the post POW camp kind of thing and and uh, and, and that was it, that was kind of interesting but the the here we were we were running against a guy with stage four uh, cancer uh, and they didn't ask him a question about his health at all um, it, it was kind of overblown considerably and I was with her every day on the entire campaign I never saw her have uh, any issues at all so never. Was, no and, and I mean we literally had reporters jumping into us to ask questions about the migraine headache thing it, it was it was absurd and we also saw this in other ways I mean we saw stories about her nails and about the dresses she wore and Nobody ever wrote about Mitt Romney's tie or, you know, his really? hair all the time. That's not true. They did write about our sweater vest. There were tons of stories about, about Romney's hair. No, 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 no. There, there were way more stories about how, you know, in every debate, they wrote about us not wearing about, boots. You know, what, what dress she wore or what color she wore or why it was a bad color or her hair. I mean, I think there were. There were a lot of stories that focused that were gender specific, right. and I, I thought that Stop coverage nice was way over the top. And, and the migraine headaches uh, opened the door to that. You were to make a point. You brought up Mr. Kane's cancer, and I think uh, you know one of the reasons maybe that wasn't a huge issue is because he was open about that from the very, very beginning. He spoke very, very openly about it. Um, so in defense of the media. In that regard, uh, he was very open about it. But um, the the point still remains that there is a double standard. You know, th they don't talk about, oh my gosh, how much did you know Mitt Romney pay for his shoes? You know, they 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 talk about different things about women, and why is that? You know, um, we we have kind of a joke on our campaign sometimes. 
<laughs> with, our, with our team is like if I would say something intelligent, you know, they'd look at me and I'd say, there's not just air between these ears, you know, and, and it's a joke, but every woman knows exactly what I'm talking about, and, and, and I think every man might because it, it, there is this, this mild double standard, and we say there's no glass ceiling, but, but there is in a way um, because we focus on things that are inconsequential when it comes to, to women candidates, and I think that uh, we could learn from what you brought up. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, it kind of rolled into our Newsweek cover. I remember that. Um, you know, we sat, yeah. we sat down with a photographer who said, my job is to come and take a bad picture of you. And we he said that? Yeah, that was the first conversation he had with her. He said, my editors don't want me to take a good picture of you. And we were about to cut the whole thing off. Um, it, it's just, it doesn't, it isn't done that way. And like I said, I've done seven of these from working male, female, working with Governor Whitman in New Jersey. And it's a different game. I mean, I remember when Governor Whitman had a ovarian cyst when she was a governor and the New York Times had a picture this big of her anatomy of what was gonna happen. And then six months later, um, uh, Giuliani had prostate cancer and the press said let's give him his privacy you know it's just a little bit different so I think it goes to the the question of commander-in-chief um, a little bit heavy and I think that particular issue lingered much longer than it actually was they were looking for a story that didn't exist and they almost couldn't take the answer no yeah. um, throughout let me shift gears here just a little bit because um, you know when we're thinking about how the race uh, progressed and the next candidates uh, who would come up, um, I mean, it almost felt like at times you guys were just playing whack-a-mole. Like there would be someone who would come up and you would knock them down and then someone else would come up. And then Mr. Kane obviously had his moment. Um, when were you too aware of the allegations of sexual harassment? When were you, did you know about those when he declared his candidacy? Were you aware of them right before they were alleged? When did you find out about that? While we didn't have an opposition research department, just like you know, just like when you sit down with a candidate, you ask them what's going to come up. We're very we were very aware of the National Restaurant Association. Uh, you knew it, so situation. you knew when he got in the race, you knew about what had happened at the yes. association, and we knew about it, and there was nothing there. One of the things that I would say that we did wrong is not respond forcefully sooner to the National Restaurant Association allegations because we knew there was nothing there. He made a decision, I'm not gonna chase something that I know there's no substance to, all right? It spun out of control, and if I had to do it all over again, on Halloween day, we would have came out with the news conference and tried to put it to bed. The other thing that I've said often that um, I think we could have done a better job of um, in that regard is um, actually preparing his family, uh, preparing his family for um, the, the rigors. Uh, they, they were great. They were 100% supportive. Mrs. Kane is 100% supportive. She was with him all the way through every bit. Um, but when it when the, the media came on uh, their family so much, it took a physical toll, and that's when Mr. Kane decided he needed to think because the, uh, 
the physical toll it was beginning to take on his family, uh, not only his wife, but I mean many people know he had his fourth grandchild born January 1st, so his daughter-in-law was in the late trimester of pregnancy. So he's looking at, at that in terms of, you know, my first job as a leader is to be leader of this family. Why did Mrs. Kane campaign more for, for Mr. Kane, both before uh, the story, but also in the aftermath of that, when she could have been a pretty powerful character witness? She's, she's great. 100% supportive. Mrs. Mrs. Kane was the deciding factor when he decided to run for president. 110% supportive. And she did campaign with him, but not as rigorously as other candidates. Mr. Kane will tell you for two reasons. She wasn't running for president. He was. And he didn't want to put her under the media um, buzzsaw that he knew he was walking into. And uh, quite frankly, I think it has been written. Um, but she uh, has a little challenge in traveling because of her health. And he didn't want to put her through the rigors of that. I think she felt a little bit like uh, Laura Bush did when George Bush proposed to her and um, you know she said well I'll be happy to marry you as long as I never have to give a speech you know so um, but Mrs. Kane was someone uh, she's very uh, classy she's very articulate uh, she's very opinionated um, uh, she would have risen quite well into the, the role of not only the nominee's wife but uh, she would have been a great first lady. Um, you know, Jonathan, and if, if you remember uh, the Greta interview with Mrs. Kane, she made the decision to do that. Right? Mrs. Kane did. Mrs. Kane did. Um, she, I mean, they didn't ask us, and she didn't ask him. She said, "I want to do this," and it and it came from Mrs. Kane. Well, you're you know asking why she didn't campaign for her husband. Why, when he got out of the race, didn't uh, Mr. Camp Kane campaign for? Governor Romney. Excuse me? <laughs> Why didn't he? Mm -hmm. he? He did. Wait a minute. He, he, Time he, out. He, he, not as much as yeah. you would have. He was he, not. Did you see him as someone who could have been a powerful surrogate? Could you have mm -hmm. used him no, more? He I was. Mean, obviously. He did. He did a ton of college stuff for us. Yeah. He came by the headquarters. He did campaign for us. But he didn't, he didn't appear on national TV for you guys as a, a surrogate during the fall campaign. One of the things about, and, right. and Mark, feel free to yeah. jump in here, but one of the things about Herman Cain is that, um, you know, he was really trying to make sure the message uh, got out afterwards apart from the labels. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you go in with an a, a label, an R, you know, whether it be Romney or Republican, um, a lot of times you can't reach some of the very people you need to uh, have come over to your side of the ticket. Okay. So he was not, you know, this, this absolute you know, uh, card-carrying surrogate, right. but in terms of out promoting the issues, promoting um, the the ideas and yeah. the policies that would really help this country, uh, he was out there every day. I want to get John Brabender in the conversation um, with uh, Senator Santorum. Uh, John, one of the things I know, I know folks in this room were fascinated by for a long time was this dynamic of having both Santorum and Gingrich in the race, dividing the conservative vote mm -hmm. while running against Governor Romney. Can you talk to us about the nature of the conversations that your boss, Senator Santorum, had with Newt during that period of time? Because they were talking, I believe, on the phone and occasionally at debates. What were they talking about? Was it ever considered that one would drop out and carry the banner? Can you just sort of tell us well, about that? Well, most of those conversations were staff to staff. <clears throat> um, 
Rick and, and, and Newt did talk a couple times, but you know, I remember Santorum telling me that Newt gave him some historical reference to the 1920s and you know type of thing, of 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 how it was going to play out again. And uh, I think Rick reminded him it was a senator that had won that year. But anyhow, you know, it, it there was when we got to what I would say the final stage of the campaign, we felt there were three things for us still to get to the delegate count to win that had to happen. Number one was for us to win Pennsylvania. Number two was for Texas that was having at least some discussions to going potentially to winner take all because they were so late in the process. And number three, we had to get Gingrich out. And it wasn't where we were competitive with Gingrich, but in many cases it was where he was getting now 4% of the vote, right. but it was killing us. Was there a discussion to get him out of the race? And if so, what did you there, say? There was clear discussions between our staff and their staff, you know, I got the sense that their staff felt it would be in the best interest if um, if Newt Gingrich would step aside mm. and there would be some uh, unified nature. Uh, I believe there was very close to that happening. When, and, do you recall? Um, early April. And uh, I remember receiving a call saying that uh, Newt personally had uh, decided he did not want to do that. From who? What's that? Who's the call from? Do you recall? Yeah, I'm not, I, okay. I know, but I'm not going to share that. Yeah, yeah. And if that had happened, you think your candidate would have gotten the nomination? Well, I think it would have helped. I mean, I, I think that if you look in retrospect, I think people forget how close maybe Rick did come to getting yeah. the nomination. Yeah. I mean, I really believe, first of all, it hurt a tremendous deal not winning Iowa on Iowa night. We did yeah. not get the type of you know luxuries that you would have being on the cover of Time and Newsweek, those type of things, the money that comes with it. But... I really believe if we would have won Michigan, which was relatively close, that yeah. we would have won Ohio the next week, and we would have been the nominee, quite hey, frankly. Vince, how close was Newt to getting out of the race during this time, and what compelled him to stay in? Well, <clears throat> uh, I think there was discussion of that. Um, um, I think uh, in terms of what compelled him to stay in, I, I think part of the, the polling showed that the, the, the Gingrich vote was not necessarily going to all go to Santorum. It was going to be a split going to uh, uh, some to Santorum, some to Romney. Um, and I think he also felt that, and this is speculation on my part, that it would be seen more as a sort of a an alliance against Romney that uh, that I don't think he felt comfortable with. Um, and um, you know, and he held out hope for a uh, doing well in uh, in Delaware and possibly a, a Reagan-style comeback in in North Carolina. But that. That was a long-range hope, and it was it was slight and tenuous. But uh, those are some of the reasons. You know, he uh, after Florida, he kind of backed off his pledge to uh, remain positive and and really sharpened his attacks on Romney. Does he have any regret about that? Does he think that may have ultimately hurt Romney and the general, uh, and and ultimately paved the way for the president, or was that something that may have helped Romney in sharpening his responses? Well, I think when you, when you. When you don't have, I mean, one of the things that, uh, you know, in hindsight, we would have done much better, hopefully would have been a much stronger surrogate operation because it's always better when right. others uh, can deliver messages as opposed right. to. Right, I mean, and coming from him, it was. Then from him, back, and, yeah. or you deliver those messages through, you know, paid, paid media television ads. And so uh, absent those resources, uh, uh, you know, I think Newt used the, the term one time that if they, if they if he's a uh, you know running back or fullback coming through the line and no one's blocking the nose guard, then he's going to run over the nose guard. So 
it became up to him to be the one to call out um, some of the, uh, uh, the 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 inaccuracies in the ads that were opposing him, and to you know, and it, uh, you know, this is uh, you know, running for president is a very personal thing. I mean, this is uh, you know, you Newt's been a, a national figure for 30 years. Um, he's been a builder of the Republican Party, he's been a build, builder of the conservative movement. So one cannot simply you know take some of those ads and just sort of wash it away and say, oh, it's all part of a big political game. And, you know, I'm all, it's all ironic and amusing. And so... Um, so what, he took, he took it quite personally. Well, I mean, I don't... My vantage point, you, you can't but help take it to some degree. And, uh, you know, I think that the, the challenge will always be how do you take negative attack ads and either match them to, to some degree on television or find a way either to transcend it because you have such an overwhelmingly positive vision of the future that those ads then sort of lose their potency, or do you do it in a, in a sort of a charismatic way by tossing it aside? Um, and you know we didn't find that that right way to do that. Um, and so uh, um, you know it's a very very human thing, and uh, maybe he could have done it in a in a, in a better way. But um, there you are, Keith. If one of the goals of this forum is to kind of look back at, at the process. Um, I, I do think one thing that didn't match up with this open um, percentage uh, delegates as you would go through, it, it was going to prolong the whole thing, was it didn't really get written about in depth, and that was the burden of ballot access. Uh, getting on the ballot in these states was dramatic, and certainly Romney had a huge advantage. He had money. He had started early. but. These states have figured out that it's a shakedown now, and it's unbelievable. They just make up a price. You want to be on the ballot in the District of Columbia? I don't know. Let's make it a hundred grand. You know, it's it's unbelievable burden for the natural um, growing of a campaign. If you have to build it to go till June, and you're starting in the beginning, and you have to suddenly take a million dollars to to get on these couple of ballots, it's going to really be a hurdle. And there may be a you know, we always say the RNC can't reform anything, yeah. but it, it maybe it's something they need to address of some kind of a consistency, at least in the first maybe uh, a couple of them. But, uh, you know, the, we we experienced Virginia. You had to make a decision. You know, are we going to be able to be on Virginia? And it's going yeah. to go door to door in every single county and all these ballot. I mean, people had to be there individually. And, and I think some of our campaigns, if we would have been the alternative to Romney, yeah. we wouldn't have been on the ballot on a lot of these states, and I think some of the other campaigns weren't on the ballot. There was something of a divide in this primary between what I would call the sort of ragtag colonial army versus the sort of well, well, well-polished uh, lobsterbacks from Great Britain. Um, the lobsterbacks won in this case. Um, but uh, let me ask John Brabender. St. Tom really had three chances: um, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, as I recall, to knock off Governor Romney. I, how much would a more uh, professionalized, well-financed campaign have helped that cause? The Romney campaign in Michigan, I know, banked a lot of early votes going into primary day. You guys did that robocall to try and get some Democrats out at the end because you just needed to move some votes, find some votes. Looking back, those three states especially, what was the advantage that Romney had in terms of his organization versus you guys? Well, that, actually, I, I would or? argue it wasn't the organization as much as it was their super PAC. Yeah. Because the way the dynamics changed is we could fight a battle in one state at a time with the Romney people and do it quite efficiently, we found. The problem is, while we're fighting in Michigan, 
the super PAC is hitting us with ads in Ohio and Illinois. And, and that was the big problem that we were running is that we could not control the message further down the road uh, like, uh, like they could. I stand corrected. It was Michigan, Ohio, Illinois was the order. So. Right. Let me just, um, looking at your primary strategy and talking, you talked last night, Matt, about how you ran this kind of lean, disciplined campaign. Um, but you, we come to the commission, obviously we're supposed to carry this conversation up through the commission. And Romney's been campaigning for 18 months this time around. And we're talking about that was the chance to introduce Romney to the American people. Um, was, were there missed opportunities in the primaries where you could have done that better? I mean, say Michigan. I mean, these were states that you were going to be contesting in the general election. You know, we, we were going back and reviewing what ads we had run and all of this for this campaign before this thing, because, you know, we forget. Um, the spot that we ran by a large percentage more than any other spot in the primary was a spot that we call mass record, which uh, we ran it because it worked, um, which was about the governor's record in, in Massachusetts. I mean, if we had it here, you'd say, oh, yeah, that thing, yeah. Um, and I think that um, what you were able to do, though, in each of these states on the media was completely dwarfed by the uh, conversation that was being held, and that conversation um, became a loud argument between candidates, and that dwarfed anything that each of the candidates was able to do. So um, when we came out of these states and, and finally secured the nomination and started testing, we found a, a remarkable number of people thought that Governor Romney was Catholic and was against contraception. Um, and it, it, it's because that he had been uh, in these debates and it was just, it's just sort of like you're in a restaurant and you're not really paying attention, but you hear this argument at this table over here and you get bits and pieces of it. You don't really know what they're saying. That's how most of the public looks at the primary. But Stuart, you said, said earlier that the debates didn't hurt the candidate in terms of pushing him to the right, but, but now you're saying that he was seen because of those debates as being against, not just contra debate. against contraception. That, that sounds to me like no, you heard no. him pretty badly. No, it's not just the debates, because after Arizona, there weren't any more debates. Right. Um, it's what you're seeing on the evening news. It's okay. just this, how it's being, being covered in that sense. Um, you bring up a topic I'm really fascinated by, and that, and that is, to what degree was your primary strategy geared around general election viability? Which is to say, uh, how much did being strong against Obama inform your primary strategy? I mean, certainly not wanting to retreat on, on health care was part of that because you didn't want to apologize for, for creating this health care law here in, in Massachusetts. But just what, what issues especially were you guys sort of uh, very, very driven by in terms of not wanting to hurt yourself too much for the general? Well, obviously, you know, we put a premium on just talking about jobs in the economy and the president's record, and that's what we tried to make the primary campaign about. Obviously, that's forward-looking into the, to the general. Mm -hmm. But when you're running for the, the nomination, you got to win the nomination. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if, if you're looking beyond securing that nomination too much, you, you are jeopardizing your chances of winning that nomination. So do you regret trying to outflank Perry on the right on immigration in the primary, Matt? 
I regret that I, I, I truly believe that people were shocked that we were going after Governor Perry in a Republican primary on Social Security. They were critical of us at the time, saying right. we were hitting them from the left. Right. And, you know, if you look through the um, unwinding of the Perry campaign, a lot of people put uh, a focus on that one infamous debate moment. But it was the very early debates, the first and second debates. The heartless. Uh, and by the third debate, and this is well before the other moment, sure. uh, I think Governor Perry was... was um, um, badly hurt, and I, 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 in retrospect, I believe that we could have probably just beaten Governor Perry with the Social Security hit. Interesting. Dave, you wanna? What? Yeah, I mean, I, I think by the the, the, the third debate was, you know, that was, that was, you know, sort of killer. We, we have a thing with threes. Yeah. <laughs> I wish we'd forgotten that one. The, uh, you know, the. the <laughs> <laughs> the first debate we got we got our you know the first debate actually worked out pretty well when uh, you know uh, Williams asked about the death penalty and you know that sort of ended the debate and you know basically uh, when he's you know again the perspective from that are not our primary voters trying to say that the death penalty is not a good idea and that so that helped us in the second debate uh, you know that it got it was going to be a disaster the whole uh, idea of uh, you know um, well you know you think I'd be, you know, do some of your five thousand dollars? Well, how much would you, you know, you know, how, okay, what is it, ten thousand, fifty thousand, hundred thousand? And the back and forth with uh, Congressman Bachman, I mean, four times he goes, you know, I want to respond to that. What, why are we responding to that? Uh, and if ha she had not said right after there that Gardasil mm -hmm. makes people crazy or whatever, uh, you know, that sort of saved us. But there was, we couldn't get anybody to do that for us mm -hmm. at the third debate, and uh, that that whole thing in Orlando was. Uh, it. And you know things just went you know filtered out of control. Obviously, had we had uh, there's things we could have done systematically and structurally to you know to come back. But at that point, uh, you're right, Matt. Stuart, did you not know that that you guys were, were always going to play in Iowa, or were you genuinely uncertain about what your <coughs> intentions were going to be in the caucuses? We we were completely um, uncertain about what we would do in, in Iowa. For how long? Until we were certain. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but but when was the I moment that, that you guys decided to engage there? Late. I mean, we didn't go on television. Uh, it's one of the interesting uh, subtexts to this whole campaign um, that plays into the debates. That um, we didn't go on television until after Thanksgiving, and we we went on um, very modestly then. Um, so we ran basically a month of television in Iowa and spent eight days on the ground in Iowa. So I would say definitely a post-Thanksgiving decision. Yeah, yeah. When was the moment inside the campaign when you realized Romney was the nominee? When uh, Senator Santorum withdrew from Pennsylvania. It was never before that. that so there, you there was an open question throughout whether you can't be in a fight and not be in the fight. Yeah. Um, let me ask uh, Matt, David, and Anna about something that I think fascinates all of us in this room, and that is when the candidates decide to drop out. You guys came in third place in New Hampshire. Um, 
It, it wasn't a close third. But you still went to South Carolina, but yet after a few days in South Carolina, you decided to drop out. What changed in those days between staying in after New Hampshire and then ultimately dropping out? Um, his conversations with his family. I mean, he just he made the decision after New Hampshire. Um, was it a financial <clears throat> issue? or What's that? Was it a financial issue? No, I, he just, I mean, and you could literally, when we had the conversation, I remember it vividly, but you could, I could see it on his face. Yeah. I mean, he was done, you know, and at that point, um, you know, we thought internally um, that Romney was going to win, yeah. um, but we felt we could stay in, peel off some more <clears throat> uh, delegates, yeah. and then our endorsement could mean more in the end. But when your candidate's done, you know, he's done. It's and not going to be he also, I mean, the, yeah. the, he also understood that his role in South Carolina would be the spoiler mm -hmm. role, and it was something he wasn't willing to play. Yeah. But I do think the finances had something to do with it. I mean, you, you know, John Huntsman's one of the most frugal billionaires you've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> right. And Rob and well, Dave. The only thing I'd say, I mean, finances were an issue the entire campaign. Well, so, like, it wasn't they, they had an unlimited ability to raise money. We had an unlimited inability right. to raise money. And Rob and Dave, it was widely expected that your candidate, Governor Perry, was going to drop out after Iowa. Uh, but yet, he then went for a jog and uh, I, I took out his Blackberry's <laughs> iPhone and tweeted, uh, he was staying in. Uh, did that catch you guys by surprise when he did that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and why did he decide to stay in? Like you uh, said, boss, what's the deal? Like, what did he say? The same reason he got in the race to begin with. Yeah. You know, he, he talked about his family and some, and some people and just realized that, you know, he didn't, you know, he just thought there was, you know, uh, you know, just the same call, uh, you know, to serve the country and to, you know, and to basically try to rectify and move forward. I mean, you know, he's very, you know, he's a very confident guy, and you know, he just, you know, knew he could. There are a lot of things he could do better. But, but before South Carolina was over, he also pulled out of the race. So, yeah. what informed that decision? Um, I I only talked to him once during yeah. the, the, that Rob. day that he got out. So, um, and uh, basically, um, you know, it was cl clearly not going anywhere yeah uh, you know and the infrastructure was just not there to, to, to continue um, and uh, you know my advice to him was to you know not to you know basically embarrass yourself yeah by losing South Carolina which we should have won South yeah. Carolina I mean yeah. three months later earlier we should have won and South Carolina Rob did, did he know that he would both a drop out and B endorse Newt or did you guys discuss that and sort of hash that out a little bit uh, no, that was that was his decision. Uh, to both, it, but to both, yeah. and I, I think part of the, it, it, to Dave's point, the, the governor just he realized there was no clear pathway to winning the nomination, and he felt at that moment in time, uh, he had an ability to influence the South Carolina primary by endorsing the Newt, the speaker, and. Uh, you know, I would argue Newt probably would have lost by ten points if we hadn't done that. Um, sure, because I'm going to ask you a question next. I, I think there's a something that's difficult to realize unless you've been through this and seen how hard this is for candidates and their families, and and how much candidates and their families are. Um, I mean, they're, they're they're real people. And, and how much that affects the flow in Jason's head um, of campaigns. Um, and it's a, no one runs for president at this level who's not a tremendously accomplished, talented person. 
and a very driven person. And each of these decisions become very difficult, but it's very, very tough on families. Very tough. And it becomes, it's a very difficult thing to report on because you don't get close to the family usually. But for a campaign um, and these people, it is a driving force that is at the center of so much. You know, you could see the emotion on Ms. Romney's face on election night. Just that you could tell she'd been crying. I mean, how is she, how have they since processed that? Has the governor kind of, he's meeting today with the president. Has it been harder for her to accept? How would you characterize their reactions to the loss now? Well, let me just say, I, I thought on election night she handled it very well. I mean, I, oh, I was, no, I'm not saying no, that no, she no, did I was, it. I was actually struck by that, um, how um, so I don't know exactly what the right word is, steady or, or you know, I, I think that there was a realization that had uh, Governor Romney been president, it would have been difficult for the family. Mm -hmm. I think that they, they understood that on a personal level. Um, but it's, it's very difficult to speak to what someone else is thinking. Um, we've talked a lot about tactics. I want to talk about message for a minute, because in the aftermath of, of the campaign this month, there's been a wide-ranging discussion among Republicans as to how to take back the White House in 2016. We've heard talk about being more moderate. We've heard talk about being more populist. We've, we've heard uh, uh, a modernize, don't moderate quite a few times. Um, I want to grab Matt David, Phil Musser, um, John Braybender, certainly, Santorum Palendi, Huntsman, because all of you guys, at some point or another, we're trying to figure out you know, more of a populist campaign, more of a moderate campaign. And it seems like this is an important conversation going forward for 2016. But can I, before yeah, we move forward yeah, to that, because yeah. that seems like a good way to kind of take sure. the, the, I have one more strategy please. question. Because we were, this, we are supposed to be going through the conventions on our panel. And one thing I'd have, I'd like to ask the Romney campaign is what was the strategy in the summer when you were allowing the president to define Romney? So that you came to the convention having to introduce your candidate to the American people when, of course, he had been the target of uh, attack ads for months. Uh, let me start it off by saying, you know, we made the decision going into the general that the thing the voters needed to learn first and foremost about Governor Romney is what he would do as president. And so that's why we went with day one, job one, and that was the focus of our paid advertising over the summer. Uh, to the first question we had in the very beginning, you know, unfortunately, we had gone through a long primary process that we call the long slog, and we had spent $87 million uh, to secure the nomination, become the presumptive nominee. And, you know, we were not going to take matching funds so that we could be more competitive uh, down the stretch. So that meant that we were being outspent over the summer. And we always understood that that was going to be one of the bigger challenges that we had. Um, even to the point where we did take out a loan at the end of the primary process going into the convention so we could stay up on TV for a longer period of time. Um, so that was our initial thought. Stuart, I don't know if you have anything to add. Yeah, yeah, let me make three points on this because I think it's really um, often misunderstood here. First, um, the day that Mitt Romney announced uh, in June, he had, what, I don't know, 25 percent of the electorate in the Republican primary. Um, uh, President uh, Obama had close to the amount of votes that he got on Election Day. So when you think about that, that means that what was Governor, uh, Governor Romney's task? He had to win the primary against a bunch of formidable opponents, 
and I think these opponents have been underestimated by the press, frankly, um, then present himself to the public and go and garner uh, a majority of the electorate nationally. That's a tough process. What did the president have to do? The president had to hold on to the votes that he had. And um, that is a very different process. He, he probably, if you actually looked at it, the president's campaign probably lost votes over that year. But they started with enough votes to win. Um, you come out of a primary, you, you are forced uh, to look at the situation of what do you need to do and you have to triage this. And it, it is, you know, every, every day in that campaign, in those situations, is Sophie's choice. And when people say you should be doing this, you should be doing that, my answer is you're right. It's like scheduling. They say you should be in Richmond, you should be in Des Moines. You're right. But you can only be in one. And uh, we tested this extensively. And what voters, and this makes sense when you think about it, what voters wanted to know most is what Mitt Romney would do as president. And they, they desired more information about Mitt Romney, they desired, but what they really wanted to know is what would this guy do as president? And that was the essential element that we had to fill with voters to give them. And I would just say that the premise of the, of the Obama campaign was to define Mitt Romney such that by the, convent, by the uh, uh, debates, you heard this spin over and over again, or this, that uh, he would not be, there would not be enough persuadable voters, et cetera. That didn't happen. Um, well. It didn't. I mean, he, 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 in all the national polls, his favorability was the same or as higher than Barack Obama's. So you don't believe that the attack ads that they ran in the, in the key toss-up states, which people in other states didn't get, created a level of resistance that was just impossible for you to I overcome, think, which is over. No, no, I don't believe that. No. Um, but we can get into that time. The other thing is just oh, yeah. the amount of money they had to spend that we didn't have to spend. We've talked a lot about the, the um, debates, and for good reason, but we haven't talked about one of the, all, the other major factors in this primary, super PACs, that much. Matt and Stuart, uh, I think Carl Forty and Charlie Spees are here. Uh, you guys couldn't coordinate during the campaign, but now those restraints are gone. The truth can be told. What did you guys expect the super PAC that supported you to be doing during the campaign? Like, like, what were you hoping for? What was the discussion in the campaign? We, we didn't talk about it. There was never a discussion about this massive entity outside that was blasting new. Jonathan, you, you uh, don't have time to sit around and talk about what other people are doing. You're so busy worrying about what you're doing. So there was never a discussion about what Carl and those guys were doing and, and what you hoped they would do in Iowa or anything like that? There were parts in the campaign during the course of the campaign where super PACs were, were helpful to Governor Romney's campaign, no doubt about it. And I think the, 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 the most obvious example is the, the baggage ad that Restore Our Future did in Iowa. And Stuart and I were just reflecting, and we should have looked this up. I'm not sure if our campaign actually did a negative Newt Gingrich ad in December leading up to Iowa. I think we were positive. So certainly that was helpful uh, for the Romney campaign. But then, it, again, of course, you, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Yeah. Super PACs were not helpful to Governor Romney in South Carolina, for example. I want to ask you about that. So Yeah, because the new Super PAC went after you guys pretty fiercely, uh, thanks to the man in Las Vegas, um, on the issue of Bain Capital. Um, did that guy, did, did those attacks on, on Bain prepare you guys at all for the general election? Or if not, why weren't you guys more prepared in general for the Bain attacks? 
Obviously, we knew Bain would come up during the course of the campaign. It had certainly come up during uh, Governor Romney's Senate campaign in 1994. It came up in his gubernatorial came in two, campaign in 2002. And it even came up a little bit in the primary in 2008 yeah. uh, with some of Governor Huckabee's supporters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so during the course of the, the primary season, uh, the chairman of our campaign, uh, Bob White, who was one of the founders of Bain, set up a, a task force which included staffers on the uh, on the campaign it included former Bain employees and they just started wargaming this all out uh, in the fall literally up on a whiteboard what the attacks were going to be in the fall of 11 11 excuse me yeah in the fall of 2011 how much did the, the, the Newton Perry Bain attacks hurt you guys do you think in the primary well I think in the, the primary time? in the primary what happened was there was a super PAC ad uh, that was called King of Bane or the film. I recall that, yeah. And within 24 to 48 hours, our, our Bane team was able to go through the film and the ads and find out that it was related to a company that was uh, sold after Bane had actually owned it. So it was, it was viewed as inaccurate. So what we were able to do was fact check that and uh, really make a push and an argument in a primary that this was an attack on capitalism. And I think that we were successful because we had organizations, news entities like the Wall Street Journal editorial board, uh, conservative newspapers like the Washington Examiner, who called out Speaker Gingrich and the uh, super PACs that were uh, perpetuating these attacks on capitalism. Uh, we even did an ad when we had all those ads going up in Florida. There was an ad that we did that defended uh, Governor Romney's record at Bain and pointed towards these attacks on capitalism. So in the primary, you know, we were, I think we were successful in res responding to that. Certainly, you know, like I said, we set this group up in the fall of 2011. Um, we thought that these attacks could occur in the primary. We were a little bit surprised at the intensity uh, in a Republican primary on them, but we yeah, dealt with them. On. I mean, you got it. Wasn't that a, they came out in pretty early on? South Carolina is where it, yeah. people really Was there longer-term damage, do you think, uh, just from the branding of uh, vulture, you know, vulture capitalism? And did that sort of stink start to really surround Governor Romney at that point? I mean, I, I'd leave that to others to answer. I, okay. I, I, I mean, I, I don't think there's a binary answer to that. There's not a yes or a no answer to that. All right. Um, it, 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 look, um, you run for president, people are going to attack you. They're going to attack you for something. If it's not this, it's going to be something else. George, um, right. These aren't secrets. Like, yeah. the, you know, the, the White House letter from Huntsman to Obama wasn't put out by anybody sitting at this table. I mean, you know, the, these people are very good at what they do on the other side. And they, were, they knew about Bain. They didn't need, you know, Rick Perry to come up with a clever phrase yeah. or, or the ads that the speaker did. They, they were going to do that anyway. All right, but if you guys could run your own super PAC, what would have been the one thing you could have gotten your super PAC to have done for you, either Newt or, or Romney. Well, if I could just answer, I, I'd say one thing is to, to change these rules so the money can flow to the campaign. Uh, the reform should be you should have unlimited money with, you know, 24-hour reporting and, and full disclosure. Um, you know, our campaign, we wouldn't have wanted the Bain attack. We would have had more attacks on the, the Massachusetts record. And drawing so you guys didn't want the Bane attack? No, it came completely out of the blue. It came up for the first time in uh, one of the debates. Gingrich was not talking about 
uh, King of Bain, who's talking about Mitt the Massachusetts moderate, and he's talking about his record. This was completely off, off uh, the topic that we wanted to talk about, and the media became consumed by it. Now, maybe there was an incidental benefit in that, you know, Santorum was completely washed out of the conversation for a, a couple days uh, in New Hampshire because of all this attack on capitalism, but as Matt said, it was very effectively rebutted by Gingrich being seen as attacking capitalism. And we had many supporters, financial supporters, who were quite displeased by what was happening and, and assigning to Gingrich and our team that this is what we were doing. And, uh, you know, there were uh, times in uh, South Carolina when, you know, the question could have been, do we continue on that vein, the, the king of Bang? We, we didn't. We focused on other things. But, you know, I, I would argue Rick Santorum ultimately was the biggest beneficiary of it. And, ironically, he was the only one, I think, that actually defended the governor on the whole issue. I, you know, the one thing that I would point out, we ran a lot of ads attacking other candidates, but we didn't have a super PAC to do that for us. Ron Paul also had more small dollar donors than anybody, which is something that theoretically we'd like to encourage in the process. But, you know, when we put up ads hitting Newt Gingrich or Rick, you know, Texas, Al Gore's Texas cheerleader or serial hypocrisy or whatever, you know, Ron Paul had, had to put his own name on it. Whereas when, when Restore Our Future was hitting, uh, you know, Newt in Iowa, they could do it under somebody else's name. And um, I, I think really when you look at 2016, you know, the first thing that everybody's going to run and do is you're going to want to run and get a super PAC to do your dirty work for you yeah. so that you don't have to do that. And you're going to try and get John Downs or your meanest ad guy in terms of talent going to the super PAC rather than internally. But then it's outside the control of the candidate, which is unfortunate. Well, he is very talented. I know I didn't mean to interrupt your kind of last question, and I guess um, we're going to have to do some kind of closing thoughts. So let me try to segue this. Um, when we think about some of the lessons learned or what the big truths were uh, going forward, I just want to pick up on what you were saying. So, did you not have the money? to aggressively defend yourselves against the president's attempts to define you over the summer? I mean, was that why you didn't? Was it, you, I mean, you said you spent $87 million during the primary. Um, look, we spent all the money we had. Right. Um, and it's, it's not complicated. We had a primary that cost us, I don't know, $137 million or something. Uh, the president didn't have a primary. Um, he had um, four years to build a war chest. We didn't. We had to go out and raise a lot of money in, yeah. the, in that summer. Um, we spent all the money that we had. We uh, had to choose what we were doing. Um, and in states like Ohio, we were being outspent three and four to one. Um, so it was not um, a... We watched this very carefully and did the what we felt and what our testing showed us was the most effective responses given the limited uh, options that we had. They, they had more bullets in their gun. Um, it's, it's not an unusual circumstance. Um, let, go ahead. Let, let me. I, I think there also was, over the course of the summer, obviously, pro-Romney super PACs, and there also was the RNC's independent expenditure, which we didn't coordinate with, but certainly the money that uh, we raised over the summer funded, and that's where Trigby's friend John Downs was, and, 
and uh, and others, and they were out there doing contrast ads against the president. I, so there were there were Romney contrast ads going on. I've kind of. Well, I guess we just if we're looking forward, thinking. So I mean, was that a direct um, result of the elongated primary process and the proportional allocation that you guys then were in a situation where you couldn't run as effectively or? I mean, was that a direct I mean, impact well, of the change it's in hard the rules? To, it's hard to say because the Democratic primary went on until June, four years earlier, mm -hmm. so, which wasn't a result of the RNC rules. Um, so uh, you know, primaries end when they end, and they end for different reasons. So um, I, I think everyone would say that your advantage to end a primary sooner, uh, you know, for 20, 30 years people have said this, to end a primary sooner and be able to focus on general election yeah. faster. Um, Matt David, one of the bets that John Huntsman seemed to make after the 08 election was that the defeat of John McCain was going to usher in a, a period where the Republicans would embrace something close to a, a DLC-style moderation, that there was an opening for somebody in the party on the environment, uh, perhaps on, on gay rights, uh, to sort of move a, a bit to the middle. Um, obviously that calculation was probably mistaken in hindsight, but just he talked to me about your candidate and the sort of broader themes of, that he struggled with of one day trying to be the consistent conservative, and then, but then, then also trying to be more of a moderating force. And do you think the next time around we're going to see more candidates in the GOP primary take a Huntsman-like course in terms of trying to move more to the middle, a more pr pragmatic approach? Well, yeah, I mean, this was actually reflected in, in the and the super PAC conversation too, because we waited forever for the super PAC to come in. And then when they did, they came into New Hampshire with an ad talking about how conservative we were, yeah. which was not really our message in right. New Hampshire. So right. uh, it was very unhelpful, right. um, but we struggled with, as I laid out last night, we thought our initial path was to the left of Romney, yeah. but we hoped, I mean, what we had going for us at the end of the day was he actually had a very conservative governing record in Utah. Yeah. When you looked at it, we right. hoped at the end of the day that conservatives would come back and give us a look. It just never happened. But I mean, going forward, though, in terms of you know, a moderate force in the Republican Party, are we going to see, you think, more candidates that take the approach that at times your candidate took of trying to say, look, we're not going to win a general election by shouting at each other and trying to appeal to just our, our narrow base? Are more candidates going to be emboldened in 16 to take that approach, do you think? Yeah, I think we're going to have to moderate on some issues, um, immigration, gay marriage. Uh, but I think uh, Stuart wrote about this the other day in his column. Um, we are going to have to – it's very difficult to beat an incumbent president. Yeah. Very, very difficult. So while we've got to make some changes, I don't think it's a freak-out moment for us. I think actually one area – we were talking about this last night – one area where we do have to catch up and we, we should freak out a little bit is on the technology front. Yeah. I mean, listening to Jeremy talk last night about their analytics and their data and the technology, that's somewhere where we need to step up. Yeah, I, oh, were you going to Yeah, I mean, in terms of a populist approach, <laughs> we've read so much about Tim Pawlenty and the Sam's Club for mm -hmm. so long, and it seemed like the most promising message for, for your candidate was to be the populist running against the rich you know, son of a governor and CEO, and here's the son of South St. Paul. But he never fully embraced the sort of Sam's Club message and sort of ran against Wall Street and ran that, that real populist campaign. Is that an opening, do you think, in the party going forward, that more of a populist approach that sort of Palenti talked about but never fully embraced? 
Yeah, possibly. I mean, uh, just to build on Matt's point, um, you know, beating incumbents is very, very challenging. And as you look at the potential field in 2016, you know, I'm not sure that uh, the Obama coalition that turned out in 08 and 012 can be reconstituted yeah. again by a nominee Cuomo or nominee Clinton against a nominee Rubio, nominee Santorum, nominee whoever may well may well run. Uh, and the credit to the Obama campaign for turning out that coalition. I agree on the technology front. I think there's obviously lessons to be learned there. Uh, and I suspect that the party will, in due diligence, focus on that. And, and frankly, having no designated leader will lead to a period of somewhat organized chaos where a lot of this will get kicked out. That's probably a healthy uh, process, if an unruly one. Uh, and then finally, I think the, you know, obviously the demographic challenge most explicitly illustrated with the Latino community is one that has instructive lessons. I think we probably didn't spend enough money communicating there early enough. Uh, if you want to understand functionally where El Salvadorans, Nicaraguans, Mexicans, Cubans uh, 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 get their you know, information, it's overwhelmingly from basically two places on television, which is Univision and Telemundo. Right. Uh, I would hope our party would look at uh, developing a growth-oriented prosperity agenda aimed at showing working class Latinos how the conservative set of principles can be good for them. And I would encourage our party to, to take the last hundred million dollars that went out the door at the very end of the campaign and look at starting to communicate at that uh, at the beginning of the cycle. As All right, we're going to wrap up here because we're getting the hook, but we want to close by going around the table here. Um, the big takeaway from this campaign and the biggest surprise to you of this campaign, or you can answer the two questions with, with one answer. But briefly answer. We're going to round table. Yes. So I just want to comment really fast on that. And it'll, 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 include, it'll include that. I think, you know, if uh, Bachman, Kane, or Santorum would have gotten the nomination, it would have been more of an ass-kicking. I mean, I think our party does need to moderate. I think minority outreach is huge. Um, our party's dead unless we, we – there's a shake-up. So, so what you're saying, if you guys had nominated a conservative like Bachman, Santorum – It would have been more of an ass-kicking. Yeah. More of an ass-kicking. Vince? The primary process or yes. the whole? Yes. I mean, obviously, money matters. Message matters. I mean, I don't know if I, if I have a particular grand insight other than we have to grow the, the, the party and that uh, there's nothing that we can't – there's nothing that conservative governing solutions um, – uh, we can offer conservative governing solutions to the country and attract a big majority. I don't think this idea of whether we're a conservative populism or moderate – or, or what have you. I think we were talking about how do we make people's lives better uh, through a set of policies, and the definition of what that is will um, can come later, but conservative governing solutions will be the way of the future. I, I would say the biggest uh, takeaway from the whole election cycle is that people have this misconception that there's a party where people sit around and make decisions. Voters make the decisions. Okay. Jeff Larson and Ben Key don't sit there to say, okay, we're going to be moderate here. Let's pick a little yeah. uh, lighter, darker, yeah, right. wider. That's crap. Candidates are good, and they have a good message. It's they're going to win. Candidates are bad. They have a bad message. They're going to lose. Yeah. And, 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 and the media and the elite want things nice and tidy and clean and not messy, which is what everybody here but Romney became and was, and they don't like that. They like, let's get this thing over in January so we have a whole year to beat up on the president. And, and the, that's the big shock is that no one – People think that the headquarters of the RNC does something other than a legal entity to raise money and do, yeah. do technical things. Um, I agree with everything he said. I, I think another interesting point or thing that I've 
learned uh, was how, how important Fox News was in a Republican primary. Uh, you could sit in Washington, D.C. and talk to 70% of Iowans or 60% of South Carolina, Carolina, people from South Carolina. <laughs> and, oops. Um, oops. Uh, and um, I just, I, I think that Newt was on to something with that point. And we got to catch, I agree with Matt completely. We got to catch Rob, up on technology. Will that, that impact, yep. do you think, future campaigns in terms of going to Iowa and New Hampshire? Will the candidates do less of it because they can go to Fox and be on TV now? No. The candidates without money will do it. The candidates with money will go and press the Fox flesh and get on Fox from Des Moines. Keith and Brett. Yeah, I, I think uh, moving, uh, my takeaway is for the future, and that is I think our party has to get back to real conservatism, being able to show demonstrable differences in uh, how we're going to govern, the, the philosophy of government, smaller government, and and uh, on the fiscal side as well. I think that's the, the big thing to, to attract a wider audience. Okay. I think uh, people who do a presidential campaign sometimes overreact and think that they're in the most unique year of all times. Um, I think sitting, uh, firing a sitting president is one of the hardest things you can possibly do in 96. You were talking about this huge dynamic about the summer and wow, these new super PACs. No, in 1990, uh, 1996, Bob Dole lost the race between June and August uh, with, with Clinton ads up in the targeted states. So I think maybe overanalyzing is, is perhaps not the right thing to necessarily do. I think every time you lose a race, you refocus your messages and uh, you move forward. But I think um, o o overreacting to this particular cycle, um, I think Matt and his team did an unbelievable job of trying to unseat a very popular president who had unbelievable skills, and it wasn't going to be easy, and they had, a, they had to do it in a very short period of time. Okay. And I think they did a great job of keeping us collected as kind of the dean of the candidates. Um, and moving us forward. Right. Next. Uh, I'd say keeping perspective is yeah. so difficult <clears throat> when you're dealing with, and Jonathan, you've written about this, and you're in this vacuum and trying to feed the beast that is the Twitter and Facebook. And um, so keeping perspective about what, what you're seeing as a campaign yeah. versus what voters are seeing. Yeah. Those are two different things, and dealing with that internally on. Matt, yes or no? Will there be a Republican in sixteen in the primary who's for gay marriage? Yes. John Raybender. Um, the lessons I think we learned, at least as a campaign, is one: uh, winning a Saturday primary means nothing. Number two is <laughs> we're we're getting into dangerous ground. I think as Republicans saying, "Oh, let's start acting more like Democrats." I think the biggest lesson we learned in the primary is there's a lot of blue collar people who feel we no longer represent or understand their lives. And I think that was also reflected in the general election. December 5th, when Mr. Kane withdrew from the race, was extremely painful for all of us. I can share hundreds of stories, but the one that resonates and always will in my life is when, we, when Linda and I had breakfast with Henry Kissinger and Mr. Kane, as we were walking out, Mr. Kissinger said, all the other candidates came here to ask me what I should say in the Sunday shows. You ask me what you should do as president. That was very telling. And it's kind of like what I said before, is that what is our purpose? Our purpose is really to serve the citizens of this country. And um, our, our motive from the very beginning was to 
promote those common sense solutions. Um, I think Mr. Kane resonated because uh, he, I often said he said what a lot of people were saying in their living rooms as they were throwing their Nerf footballs at their TVs. Right. Um, and, you know, we learned that, that it, was, it was the people, the, the people who, who really were speaking in a new way this election, and it, it was chilling right, at triggered. times. All right, I'll be fast. Biggest surprise how the media and pundits are overbuying into the notion that Obama's coalition is a democratic demographic coalition. This is the primary discussion that we're talking about. Uh, well, yeah. I, I think that's true in the primary too. And then the second one is is <laughs> <laughs> second one is uh, I think you know the Republican Party needs to do better among younger voters. Um, and there are real lessons in Ron Paul's message National for attracting security? Younger, younger voters. National security? Should, should the party be less hawkish, do you think? Well, I think, I think um, you can have a discussion about national security that may not be where Ron Paul is, but may be someplace not where John Bolton is as well that less could appeal more. But what in, what in Ron Paul's message do you think could oh, I, to, the younger, to attract that younger economic voter? Em, economic empowerment is a huge one, uh, an emphasis on the fact that you know their generation came of age in a, if you're 30 years old you know you were in college when 9/11 happened you've seen friends go to Iraq Afghanistan come back is different people you've had two recessions um, and Ron Paul is speaking to them about the fact that you know government is not necessarily the answer to their problems and that they shouldn't sit around saying we need to rely on government and and you know Jeremy yesterday said that the, the area where the demographic group that Obama was worried about was younger voters. There was a huge opportunity there. Ron Paul, you know, 13,000 people at the University of California, Los Angeles campus, um, you know, 6,000 at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. All right, They're same with Matt. Yes or no, team. will there be a candidate in the 16 primary triggered to this for marijuana legalization? <laughs> what candidate are you thinking about, Jonathan? <laughs> yes or no? <laughs> I have no idea. I, I'm, I don't predict future. Is Rian going to run in 16? <laughs> I would be arrogant to try and make an announcement for, for Rand Paul, but I'm sure you'll be the first one to know if he does. Matt? Takeaway. One of the luxuries of working for Governor Romney is no matter how hard you were working, he was working harder. And if you want to win your party's nomination, you have to go out and take it. And one of the big reasons why at the end of the day in April, Senator Santorum was going head-to-head -head with Governor Romney is the guy worked tirelessly. He sat out there in Iowa when no one was paying attention to him, and that matters. And I think sometimes people forget how much that is a factor in who becomes the nominee. Uh, surprise, the debates. The debates were important in 2008, but in the 2012 primary, it was just shocking how they shook up the race week after week and how many people were watching these things. Um, I, I think... My um, biggest surprise um, was the degree to which uh, Governor Romney was considered a front-runner, um, even though he never led in the polls. Um, it, was, it was sort of odd. Um, and uh, takeaway, um, I think, is that we, we seem to be in a moment now that is very narrative-driven. If we go back and look at the November, December 2004 moment, it was filled with why there was a Republican lock on the Electoral College, why there's unlikely for a Democrat to be elected president in the near future. And I think that's a similar moment here. Um, and I think that the, the primary process uh, in four years is likely to serve us very well and to produce a nominee that is likely to win the presidency. And, and we should remember that. Um, 
Thank you. I agree with both that. Um, I, I'm going to go on debates as well because uh, the, the their ability to re reveal kind of singular authentic moments was shape-shifting. And in tandem with that, the rise of social media, in specific Twitter, in terms of setting the narrative uh, both during and post the deba debate and the implication of essentially Twitter narrative on your ability to raise funds, uh, frame the outcome, fundamentally reshaped, I think, both the debate process, it has implications for the future. And as we go forward to 2016, I think uh, it'll probably uh, provide a whole new medium in which debates are discussed. Great. All right. Well, Thank you all so much. Yeah. Appreciate it very much. Trent. Thanks, everybody.